Gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. edition of the Hagman Report. It is Monday, February 26, 2016. A lot of stuff to get into. Of course, the Democratic memo was released on Saturday. We're going to be talking about that and a number of other things. Third hour, Peter Barry Chowka. And second hour, of course, tonight, Stephen Menking. Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you for some headlines, news. Yeah, we got a lot going on this weekend. It was a uh, a very interesting weekend. We have still talking about gun control and the Florida school shooting. More information has come out on that. And pretty interesting information at that when we look at um, the people who've been in the news so much. You know, Sheriff Israel, he's under a lot of fire after we learned not one sheriff's deputy, but four sheriff's deputies refused to go into the high school or did not go into the high school. And you have a number of different uh, opinions on that. Also, the uh, and Jake Tapper interviewed Sheriff Israel on Saturday, which was a very interesting uh, interview. i got to give Tapper some credit for actually holding the sheriff's feet to the fire. I don't know if you saw that interview. I did not see that. But, but just but, to be clear, the police have no constitutional obligation to actually protect you. Um, no. It's a Supreme Court ruling. But that ruling. was a crime in process, though, progress. Right, right, right. But nonetheless, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that, you know, um, no, they don't necessarily have to protect you. But very interesting, and I think people are getting the idea now of really mm-hmm. what's happening with this, uh, uh, the police these, the 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 shooting environments, active shooting environments, up close and personal, really view into events, and I think this is enlightening. So the Tapper interview, what's the deal? Well, the sheriff really uh, looked like an idiot, I'd have to say, in a number of things that he said. He said he has uh, amazing, le- he's shown amazing leadership through this whole thing, despite the fact that the uh, cops were called over forty times to this kid's house, despite the fact. The other law enforcement failures with the FBI tips, despite the fact. Well, forget about that. The what, what, what about the what about and, the performance at the school? What's what's the issue there? Well, the cops didn't run in, even when uh, they stayed outside. And when another police force came, they immediately ran into the school. The Broward County sheriffs did not run into the school. Now we don't know. There's talk, speculative talk, that there was a stand down order given. Right. I don't know that to be right. the case. Uh, other people were looking at the. Um, Procedures, normal procedures that they go through. But I, I read just before we went on air from the Broward County uh, Police Union chief who said that that they there are protocols in place that said, doesn't say they have to run in to the situation. It says they may run in. But they also said that uh, that this sheriff has a problem. And the problem is, or the officer who didn't run in because they were there for a number of minutes while shots were being fired. And if you... Uh, the argument was being made that the officer didn't know if the shots were coming from inside the school or outside. But the union president said, well, uh, the shots were ongoing for a number of minutes while the guy stood there, and if he couldn't figure out where the shots were coming from in that amount of time, then there's a problem there in itself. Uh, no, okay, that there was okay. four deputies. So, so uh, how is it, uh, and, and I guess the bigger, bigger issue is this, and, and certainly I would not second-guess the deputies. 
with respect to their, now, hear what I'm saying because <laughs> I'm getting emails saying, well, you know, you're, you're I'm not, I'm not going to second guess the, the, uh, response of the deputies at this point. I, I want to know more, um, with respect to the active shooting scenario. But my question is, how is it today that we are having more and more problems? You've got Las Vegas, a mass shooting event, questions, so many questions. I'm not even sure Paddock ever fired a, a gun. I'm just, I, again, it's a, do we even have proof of that? Based on, okay, so now the Florida shooting, um, you've got an active shooting, shooting scenario and you don't have the police run in. And, and of course you have all of the history behind the shooter. Um, and fail, it's systemic failures of the FBI, of the social services apparently, and of so many. And then, then what's the deal with a, with a mother, uh, of this, of this alleged shooter? Uh, apparently she's, you know, going after, uh, You, you all right? I'm fine. Plugging something in. All right. Uh, so, so a lot of questions, uh, you know, sorry about that, you know, behind the scenes stuff. A lot of questions with respect to even the incidents and the events. But nonetheless, having said all of that, uh, we've got, I think we've got to take a look at the, at the bigger picture here, especially when it, all of a sudden it seems like Las Vegas didn't really register a blip on the map with respect to the leftist progressives called no. for gun control. Then we have this Not shooting at this high school, and now we've got this demand for gun control in the in the wake of a whole bunch of convoluted uh, facts and misinformation, disinformation, and in the absence of any specific information, and as well. Um, the uh, issues with respect to the sheriff's performance, which again, look, I don't know what happened there. I, with any degree of certainty, I wasn't there. Uh, we, we need to know. We need to find out. Because uh, I'll tell you something. I would like, I mean, if I, if I was a police officer, I would be running toward the, I would be going into the, um, into the school. And I, I've seen the argument too. Well, the guy's got an AR-15. You, you're just, you would just have a, a service pistol. Yeah, but you're not talking about going in with a, you know, six shot revolver. Generally speaking, you either got a 45 or a nine millimeter, depending on on your preference. You know, in additional magazines. So, uh, plus you would have, I would suspect, a somewhat of a tactical advantage, only to the extent that you'd have backup. You've got a radio, but at least go in there to assess the situation. If you've got kids running out. Certainly, you could at least grab one, perhaps, and say, you know, where's it coming from? All they'd have to do is say library, cafeteria, whatever. But again, I'm, I don't want to second guess the police officer. Well, see, this is my but, problem. The the other <clears throat> Coral Springs Police Department, which arrived as these four sheriffs were uh, sheriff's deputies were outside, they immediately ran into the school, and within ten seconds, the one cop encountered and started to treat a wounded a wounded student. Right. So, w- which the okay. sheriff would have stuck Priority his head in the door, even uh, attempted to. I mean, you get to the, the scene of the shooting. According to him, you can't tell if the shots are coming from inside or outside. So you, you do nothing? You stand there for four minutes? Uh, that, that doesn't sit well, well with me. Okay, no, obviously. Because four minutes in a situation like that is an eternity. No, you're, you're going to want to assess this, the situation, unless you're a complete moron, in my opinion now. Um, uh, you should be able to do that rather rather quickly. But, you know, a lot of things are going through your head, too. More than one shooter, 
what's going on outside. You know, look, again, I wasn't there. I don't know where this officer was or this, this deputy was relative to the crowd, relative to the shooting, so I don't know. But a lot of stuff, I guess in a larger sense, without even having to have that information, a lot of things in a, in a larger sense, a lot of things are wrong with this with this whole picture and, and this, this series of shootings, whether it be Florida, the Parkland shooting, Broward County, whether it be Las Vegas, certainly no answers there. And, and I'm looking at this as... Um, I want answers. And I think we as taxpayers, we as citizens of the United States deserve answers before you go, before anything else, we have to establish what, what happened. And if we can't do that with any, any degree of certainty, how are we going to talk about, um, you know, talk about solutions when we don't even know with precision? If they could say, okay, here are the videotapes. Here is the sheriff's deputy. Here's how he reacted. And here's the backup. Video. Here's, yeah, where's the video? Well, they do have video, and I don't expect them. Where's the video? Maybe they'll release a still or two on the uh, deputy standing outside, but I don't expect them to release video. I, I want to see the video. Uh, on, on both. I want to see all the video in Vegas. I want to see all the video mm-hmm. in Florida. Just like 9-11. Again, with respect to these shootings, I think it's important. I think it, it, it the, the, any, any aspect of privacy outweighs the um, or, or public interest outweighs any any privacy concerns or, or, or any other concerns, because you've got a you've got a vulnerable target. That being a school, you've got the alleged inaction of a, a, a one sheriff's deputy, if not others or whatever. You've got supposedly alleged heroic activity inside the school. Look, show all of the videotape, make it all public. People want transparency, and I think that that's what we need to get. And, and by the way, when I said I'm not second-guessing, or I don't want to second-guess the deputy, I meant to say, and I mean this from this perspective, we weren't there. We don't know what happened. So until we know with, with a degree of precision what happened, I, I just think it's a little bit a little bit iffy to talk. If If upon viewing the tape that we can see, okay, he did not act properly, why didn't he? What was he thinking? Um, because really, how many of us know with, with any degree of certainty what happened at that school? We don't. We, we have eyewitness testimony. And by the way, you know, human eyewitness testimony or direct evidence is a lot worse than circumstantial when it comes to, uh, things like that. Um, you know, eyewitness testimony, it, we, we've seen the value or the, Lack of value with respect to that. So anyway, but what's what's the blowback or the cause? What is happening now from all of this? Now the demands for gun control. Now the demands for uh, the ban on bump stocks. Which, by the way, bump stocks. Look, if you're into precision shooting, a bump stock is not going to do much for you. Uh, in fact, it's going to be a hindrance to you. I don't know. Seriously, I don't know anyone who uses bump stocks. No, I don't either. Uh, it's just I talked to one of my friends over the weekend who said he had one, but never actually used it. They're not I don't know if I if if this is true or not. But today I heard that you're not allowed to use them on in the NRA's shooting ranges. Which, I, I don't yeah, I have seen signs on on rifle ranges where you, you don't bring um, things like that, the novelty, the toys, you know, in, in the shooting ranges. So, but anyway, all of this, of course. We have, I think we have to get to the bottom of it in terms of really what happened. Uh, I do want to see the video. I would, I would hope that they make the video public. Now I was on with Alex Jones yesterday, yeah, yesterday and Roger Stone. And then Friday I was, I was on. One thing I, I, I saw that video of, they played a video and I had not seen this before. And shame on me because I, I guess I was too enthralled in the, uh, in the, um, 
um, in the memo and, and the, the spying, but I saw a, a video that they played. Have you, is it, have anyone seen this of the sheriff in this, uh, uh, or the, the deputy sheriff, or at least a, a sheriff from Broward County in the mosque or in speaking Arabic and talking I heard about, okay, they're talking about Sheriff Israel. Okay. They uh, say he is, uh, uh, that, that, uh, I was, I was stunned okay, you're talking when, about I, when I saw that. The, you're talking about him giving a, a lecture or a talk in a mosque about Second Amendment rights. Is that? Well, I don't. You know what? I don't know what it was about. But he, 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 it looked like to me he was speaking Arabic, and and of course there were. Um, it, it was it was played yesterday, or Friday. I, my days run together, but nonetheless, uh, the you know if 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 that video and I do believe it's authentic, what's that all about? Um, I, I just I just don't quite understand it, but I was shocked by that. So, anyway, and, and to, to to run that to run that down, it's a, it's a little bit difficult in terms of really authenticating and and providing the context in which it was taken. But I do believe that, as shown on Infowars again yesterday, I think it was Sunday night with uh, uh, or Friday, regardless. To me, that causes a lot of concern in the larger sense. And of course, Israel's uh, the picture with Israel with uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Clinton. There's, there's okay, a bunch that, of that, that, you know not, not that we need to talk about this. What's going on there with that? Okay, apparently this is a Broward County Sheriff's deputy teaching right. local mosques to defend themselves. Is not Sheriff Israel? I, I, okay, but regardless, it was a, it was a sheriff from Broward County, yeah, or one other sheriff. Okay, and it was a self-defense class. Yeah, Islamic but, guard. But, but it, the the Arabic language in the uh, Islamic greetings in the beginning sounded just a little bit too oh I don't know a little bit too disturbing for me especially in the environment where you can't even uh, you know pe- people get offended when you say God bless you or uh, uh, you know they refuse to uh, say a prayer or allow prayer to be said during games or before games and to see this from a law enforcement commission law enforcement uh, person just yeah. it, it it gives me a little bit kind of some concern there, especially well, especially in the wake of the shooting, or it, regardless of when this happened, it could have been two years ago, five. Years, I, I don't care. But think about that, and then think about the larger uh, larger context of Israel with Clinton, and think about Israel uh, Sheriff Israel's uh, proximity to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and think about Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the Awan brothers. Look at the entire thing. Look, look at the whole landscape. Don't just focus on one one thing. And I think a lot more questions are raised than answers are found. That's just my view on that. Okay. So well, it's a a continuing story. We are hopefully going to learn whether there was a stand down order given, and the uh, Republican Congress of Florida is demanding that Governor Rick Scott fire Sheriff Israel. Right. Now he is an elected official. It was interesting. This uh, <clears throat> David Hogg kid has been on all these talk shows all weekend long. Uh, you know, the, from the Oprah, the Ellen, to the uh, George Stephanopoulos, ABC, to CNN. He even has his own uh, gun control plan that he had released on Twitter. It's uh, pretty eye-opening. What, subsequent to the shooting or previous uh, after to? Shooting, after the okay, shooting. Okay, so subsequent to About, the shooting. About, you know, yeah, you, right. you can only have a handgun with, that holds one or two bullets in, or a shotgun. Everything Go else back has to, to the be muskets, banned. right? Right. Yeah. But um, okay. it, it's just amazing. And he went on the air, and he was defending the sheriff. Blaming the NRA, blaming Donald Trump, but defending the sheriff. 
And there, there's some. I'm not going to get into the speculation right now. Well, again, kid, but we've we've look, we've got to, here. There, there's yeah, there's a lot wrong, and I think until we really find out what the real story is, if we ever find out what the real story is, I, I would be very very hesitant hesitant to uh, cast mm-hmm. blame. And that's not that's not me taking the we you know uh, the weenie way out here. No, I, I'm just saying. Wait a minute. We don't. We, you know, until you're in that position, you're condemning a guy. Maybe he deserves it. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, uh, I wonder how many people. Have you ever been shot at? Yes. Okay. I've been shot All at once. No, I was shot at one, one time. And it, it's really odd. I mean, it's a bizarre feel. If you've never been shot at before, let me tell you. Uh, and this, this is almost, almost, well, it was 38, 38 years ago. And, and look, I was, I was actually working for the, for EMS, for emergency management. We pulled up in a, in front of a house and, uh, um, back then you had, instead of, you know, the fancy light bar, bars on the ambulances, you just have like a, there was just a one light, uh, I don't know, like a, the, the cherry on top of a, but you just had one light. And when I had got out of the driver's side, the house, I, I can, I can remember this like it was yesterday. The house is to my right. Actually, you know, the driver's or the uh, passenger door was facing the house, and this is in front of the house at the street level. Even with the, we'll say, even with the uh, front door of the house, ambulance. And uh, <coughs> I, I stepped out of the driver's side, and I heard this kind of like a pop. But it, 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 there were pieces of plastic from that light, that flashing light, that came down around me. I'm thinking, wow, the Flashing light, something happened. It, it, it exploded. I, I'm thinking, man, I didn't realize those things could pop like a, like a light bulb. Never, never occurred to me that someone was shooting a gun. That, that is until I heard this uncontrollable or this very shrill scream. And it was my, like my partner was running with me saying, Hey, they're getting shot at. And, and the next bullet hit the window. Actually, the the passenger window and went through the driver's side, but by that time it would, you know, the bottom line is this: it it took it took I mean it took a while to register. The reason I the reason I bring this up is you don't know how you're going to react. And I mean, it, it took me a, a good I don't know five seconds, maybe longer, to realize I'm getting shot at. And it just it was the furthest thing from my mind, even with evidence raining down on me that there's a the, you know, plastic from a light. I'm thinking, wait a minute, how'd that blow? Huh. And then, of course, you know, the, uh, the fact that my, the next shot, of course, went through the driver's side window. It was pretty clear by then what the situation was. And then you're just trying to find a place to hide your butt in a big way. Because, it, and then you're kind of thinking, where's this coming from? And they never caught me. Well, yeah, you weren't <laughs> okay. even a, you weren't even, yeah, but, um, but, so it, it's, until, again, that's why I say you're, you just, in, in, until you're in that position, um, now, you know, of course, you have, I don't know how many people have had guns pointed at them, that's an tar- entirely different thing, but, um, but having a, actually getting shot at with a bullet, you know, that, you know, experiencing that. So, so, again, so we need answers on this. Uh, and I think it's for the public good to get answers on this with respect yeah. to Florida. Again, tonight, uh, top of the hour, we're going to have Stephen Making join us. And then 
top of the Peter Chow final Chow. hour, Peter Peter Barry Chaka for his regular Monday yep. spot, yep. <clears throat> which is uh, something that we look forward to here. As Peter does great work both on uh, writing articles and on doing interviews and talking about subjects that are important to him. So it's going to be a lot of fun tonight. I want to mention this. There's a few things about the DACA uh, debate that is is going in our going on in our country right now. One over the weekend, a DACA, a 21-year-old DACA student of a high school. I don't know how that works, being 21 years old and also being in high school. Threatened to shoot up the, the school with guns. And, you know, that's a story in and of itself. But the DACA debate. The Supreme Court issued an interesting ruling today. I don't know how many people saw it. But apparently what they have done is intervened before uh, a court of appeals judge could step in on the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. The lower court order that remains in effect says that the DHS must continue to accept renewal applications from the roughly 700,000 young people. The administration had intended to shut the program down by March 5th, but that deadline is now largely meaningless. The March 5th deadline, Dad, is that Obama's, the original Obama DACA mandate? Was that the deadline put by the Obama administration in his executive order? Do we know that? Uh, you, you know, I'd have to check on that. I, that that's either from uh, that's either a judicial. Um, it's that's a great question. I'll look it up right now. Hey, if anyone knows the answer, go ahead and, and send it to us. Well, either way, uh, this, this is a setback for the Trump um, immigration debate, and the, this court has ruled now that they have ruled. Uh, apparently, Trump can't do do anything. Uh, the deadline, the March 5th deadline is now largely meaningless and the DHS must continue to accept renewal applications from the 700,000 young people. In a brief order, the court simply said it is assumed the Court of Appeals will act ex- uh, expeditiously to decide this case. Monday's denial also gives Congress more time to come up with a legislative solution, even though bipartisan efforts so far had failed. At the White House meeting with governors from around the country, President Trump has said the court's decision, we'd like to help DACA, and criticized the lower court. Pelosi obviously interjected and saying, uh, today's action shows rescinding DACA was not only legally questionable, but unjust and cruel. Okay, and, and remember that DACA was originated by an executive order in the Rose Garden. Right. Uh, but by, so, so by, by executive, judge? no, it's, it's. <laughs> how can a judge come in and say, well, that deadline is, uh, not, not good anymore or not valid anymore? And DHS, you have to continue to accept this, uh, the, the applications for the yeah, people in this yeah. program. My question is, if this, if Obama set this up via executive order. Yeah. And Trump, what did he do? Did he do anything well, okay. with an executive order trying look, to end look, it? Look, well, well, yeah, the short answer is yes. And look at the issues of the, of the travel ban. You've got these, these mm-hmm. judges, for example, being able to, uh, put the kibosh on an entire nation, their policy. That was never intended by the, uh, uh, constitutionally intended. Right. This is ridiculous. Yeah. That's what's going on. So the short answer here is, uh, and, and I suppose the, the succinct one, the correct one is that, that President Donald Trump should be able to rescind the previous executive order and put, uh, correct things merely that way. And, and without restraint or molestation by any judicial 
activist. And, and by judicial activist, I mean a circuit court or a federal court uh, judge in any one of the circuits in the United States. So we need to get this fixed. And that, that's why, you know, had Hillary gotten in, and, and think about this, stacking the judiciary, we, we already see activist judges. The Supreme Court, my goodness, everything would have been fundamentally changed um, because of the globalist agenda here. So that's what we're looking at. By the way, um, yeah, uh, it, it, when we come back from the break, I do want to get into the memo. It seems that yeah. we're missing a witness. I don't know whether you guys heard about this. We're missing a witness uh, with the memo, and I want to touch on that. Well, this um, is the much-hyped uh, Democratic response memo right. to the Nunez memo that detailed the FISA court, the FISA court abuses by a number of people in the FBI and the DOJ, and it showed that the, the Christopher Steele dossier was primarily used to obtain these warrants without explaining to the court where that uh, information came from and explaining to the court that it was opposition research well, instead of intelligence. Actually, there's more to it. Yeah, this is so fascinating, Joe. Uh, I really I spent the entire weekend going through every word, every line of the the. Uh, Democratic memo. I, I went and I, I read everything I could read on it. I went through the the uh, CPAC interviews, the uh, the Sunday morning interviews. This is fantastic in term. When I say fantastic, this lays out the this response really proves that the entire spying, the Visegate, is actually Obamagate, and even more, this was an intentional uh, setup by the Clinton slash Obama people to entrap Donald Trump and to uh, this is perhaps one of the most uh, lawless things I've ever seen in terms of a political campaign. This is as bad as it gets I believe. This is far worse than Nixon. This is far worse than anything in the past. Yeah, This is attempted political assassination. But when we come back, stay with us, because it appears that one of the, the source for the alleged, um, uh, shall we say, the, the wet deal there on the Russian bed, you know that salacious story, that part of the dossier, that, that source, Sergey Milion, it appears, this according to Chuck Ross, when we come back, he, well, the FBI can't find him. Interesting. Yeah, more on that on the other side. And did you see ABC, yeah. what they said? They said that the uh, redactions in the Schiff memo yeah. was Trump covering up uh, covering up information that the public should know. Well, well, you know, he, here are the redactions. <laughs> I that was okay, so I mean, look. Um, no, I mean, I, I think I posted on Hagman Report. They yeah. actually made the case that uh, made the argument. I saw it. That yeah, absolutely incredible. And we're going to talk more about this memo. What it means? Does it verify uh, what Andrew McCabe said that the the surveillance would not have been conducted without the Steele dossier. I think that's the most important question. We'll talk more on that when we come back. You're listening to this Monday edition of the Hagman Report. Don't go anywhere. You know, the gift that keeps on giving is the uh, Democratic 
memo or the memo. Folks, this is perhaps, and I believe this to be the most important story of our lifetimes. This is really Exhibit A, the deep state coup against the United States, against the nation, uh, against our Constitution. And this provides the best, I believe, the best working glimpse of the um, globalists. And we really need to talk about this, even more so than the shootings, because really, until the until we have evidence like this, yeah, we can talk about the, the the shootings in theory. We can we can probe for answers. I get that, and we need to do that. But until we have evidence, this is what I would call evidence. This does not. I mean, this stands on its own in terms of evidence. But so this is what I want to talk about before we get into this. Um, I, I do want to mention. Portions of this broadcast brought to you by Simply Safe. Oh man, I'll tell you something. I've been working with Simply Safe. I've had Simply Safe guarding or protecting my home, my family, our offices, our studio for a number of years now. They're great people. It's a company I've worked for for quite a while. They've been around for for quite some time. They've transformed into the fastest growing home security company in the nation. Now they protect over two million people. Two million people. Did you hear that? Two million people. That's a lot. In fact, I was walking down. I took my dog for a walk, one of the nice days we had last week. Three, four doors down from where I live, my neighbor is out there. Waved hello. Looked over, and here she is. She's she's pounding a, a uh, Simply Safe sign in her front yard. I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty cool. We don't. We're not, you know, friends. I did so. I didn't really ask if 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 she used the code Hagman. Next time I walk by, I'm going to. But nonetheless, look, Simply Face, Simply Safe is a great company. Protect over two million people. Well, they just released their brand new home security system, the all new Simply Safe. This system has been completely rebuilt and redesigned. They've added new safeguards to protect against power outages, down to Wi-Fi, cut landlines, bats, hammers, and everything in between. The all-new Simply Safe was redesigned to be practically invisible, with powerful sensors so small you'll hardly notice them. But you know who will? Intruders. Simply Safe. They spent years building this system. They have added so much. We have the cameras installed in our home. I'm going to tell you, this company, they really have the forethought and the customer in mind. Listen, you will still get the same fair and honest price. 24-7 protection for only $15 a month. And there's no contract. It's smaller. It's faster. It's stronger than anything they've built before. But the supply is very limited. Now, let me tell you how to get this. Visit simplysafe.com slash Hagman right now to order. That's simplysafe.com slash Hagman to protect your home and family today. That's simplysafe.com slash Hagman. Or just go to our website. Click on the banner. You'll see it right at the top, on the top right. Click on that banner. They'll take you to our home at simplysafe.com slash Hagman. It is the right way to protect your home. Now, and we thank them, by the way, for all that um, they've done for us in terms of protecting our home and our family. The the most important people in our lives, of course, are our family. Um, and, and they've come through. I can tell you, they've come through. I could tell you a couple of stories, but I'm not going to because we've got, we, this memo, this memo is really, uh, this is an exhibit in my view. This tells you everything, or not everything, but it really gives you insight into the 
uh, thought processes, and I believe that this is really an exhibit that shows the Democrats, the progressives in this country, are actually the anti-civil liberty party. They're not only that, they are criminals, and they don't care about the First, the Second, or the Fourth Amendments, the Fourth Amendment being search and seizure. The first, of course, you know what that is, and the second, of course, that's obvious. But um, the memo confirmed two separate things. That, number one, the dossier was, in fact, used as a basis for the FISA court warrant. Okay, that's important to understand. And as a matter of fact, I tabbed it right here because it's on page five. As when I was on with Infowars, I was talking about this. On page five is really the admission that's important. And the second thing is the FISA court never informed or the FISA court was never informed that the dossier was, in fact, paid for, bought and paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign. But if you look at there's convoluted language in the footnotes. No matter how they try to spin this, the convoluted textual explanations that are that's contained in this document, they're damning, and they're damaging. They're damning to the progressives. They're damning to the repugnant people like Adam Schiff. They're, they're damning to Hillary Clinton and all of their, the cohorts. And equally, if not more importantly, when you start following the, the breadcrumbs in here by the Democrats' own admission, by the minority House Permanent Subcommittee on Intelligence, by, by their own admission, when you start following the breadcrumbs, you're going to see that um, this was a sting operation gone rogue on Donald Trump and those people around him. And Dan Bongino talks about probable cause. Well, there is no probable cause given the weight of the evidence. All right, now, this confirms that second- and third-hand information was was used, actually, for the basis of a FISA warrant. There was fraud perpetrated on the court this is so critical to understand. And the question I've been getting by numerous emails, especially from my morning program, will there be justice? I think there will be. I really believe that to be the case. I don't know when. I don't know what it's going to look like when it happens. But I think there will be justice done. And I'm talking through the legal system. This is not something, I, I believe that this is not something that, that the American people will allow, especially the patriots will allow, to see this happen. Now, you might say, well, you know, it, it, uh, we have, I haven't seen anything. Uh, I haven't seen anything that, to suggest that the, uh, the conservatives are going to act, or the right wing, or the, the, the conservative bias are going to act on any of this. More disclosures are coming. But in the meantime, I want to point out one thing. I think, uh, Eric, I think I sent you a, a link, the Daily Signal. All right. This from Chuck Ross, who was, he was interviewed at CPAC. The Daily Signal, just really quickly, this is where it kind of gets really interesting. Congressional investigators right now, they're struggling to track down a source that allegedly provided some of the more salacious claims made in an anti-Trump dossier cited by federal officials as the really as a reason to begin spying on one or more of the president's associates. Now, House and Senate committees, I'm not going to read this, but House and Senate committees investigating the, the Russian interference in the 2016 elections, they're looking for a witness. 
and who might that be? Well, if you go, and Chuck Ross has a great expose on this, when you start looking at, at who this is and start following the breadcrumbs, you'll find that, wait a minute, um, Sergei Milion, he was the guy that passed along the information, the salacious part of the of the dossier that ultimately made it to Christopher Steele, that ultimately made it in the dossier, that ultimately made it to the FBI, that ultimately made it into the FISA court as part of the basis for the warrant. Well, guess what? FBI can't find him. Now, his real name, his real name, by the way, where is that? It's, uh, I, I don't even know how to pronounce the, the first name, Surihei Kakuts. That's his real name. He had some contact with at least one Trump campaign advisor and claimed to have worked as a broker uh, for Trump's real estate company, which you got to watch what they're saying. But anyway, the, um, the, the fact is this. Sergey Milion is missing, or at least missing to the FBI. Million. When you say missing to the FBI, they have made active efforts to try to locate him and can't find him? And this is good. that You know, yeah, um, yeah, they have. Do they, they don't want to find him? Well, it depends on who you ask. Okay, it depends because when you start running down these breadcrumbs, it gets really murky down there in that swampish area. But Millions' Facebook account includes photos, I just want to tell you this, showing him speaking with Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch who is a former business partner of Paul Manafort, a Trump campaign chairman for a few months back in 2016. Okay, okay now. Okay, there's really no evidence known or no known evidence that Million and Deripaska exchanged information that ended up in that salacious uh, anti-Donald Trump dossier. Although several links recently emerged between Deripaska and, or Deripaska, I'm sorry, and Steele. Now, Follow this carefully. Deripaska, Deripaska's American lobbyist, his name is Adam Waldman. Where have you heard that name before? And this was claimed in text messages in 2017 with Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, that he was in touch with Steele. Man, are you following this? This is enough to make your head explode. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wait, what? This guy's, they can't find this guy? This guy was like everywhere and anywhere back during this sting operation. And suddenly, when the fit hits the shan, they can't find him. The best in the world, you know. There's something really wrong here. And it's only going to get worse. Because there's another name. And I said this in my morning show. There's another name here that, uh, I oh, wouldn't you know, I left, I left my notes in my office, but, um, there's, there's another person that's involved in this. It happens to be the contemporary of uh, Susan Rice and a colleague of Susan Rice. If you look at the overlap between the Department of State and the White House, the executive branch, within the executive branch during the time of Obama, his occupancy of the White House, Remember Susan Rice. Of course, everyone knows her. She's that creator of the, the oh, the uh, hmm. Benghazi stories. Well, remember the unmasking aspect of this scandal. Well, her contemporary there uh, was the actually was a 
was part of the unmasking and part of the spying, part of the FISA probing, but the conduit that worked between the Department of Justice slash FBI and Donald Trump. Lisa Monaco, that's her name. But you know what? Do you know what position she had before that? She was the chief of staff for, can you guess it, Robert Mueller, who is now heading up the the independent counsel investigation to take in an attempt to take Donald Trump out. So, wait a minute. You've got Susan Rice, Lisa Monaco. You've got the FBI and DOJ. You've got all of these players in the orbit of Obama, in the, in the, in the, his colleagues of, of, or reporting to Barack Hussein Obama, and, and you've got over 36 people, by the way, receiving over, I'm sorry, I don't want to exaggerate, you've got over 30 people receiving the presidential daily briefing that contains information about this national security investigation, in air quotes, that really is nothing but a political assassination against Donald Trump. And you've got the FISA warrants that extend well into the middle of last year. And everything is falling apart. Everything is is exploding. Adam Schiff is having a fit because no one is really taking this memo seriously, except those people who are brainwashed and lobotomized. And now... We're seeing phase two of the Nunes operation take place. And phase two is looking at the State Department, is looking at the executive branch, in tandem with the Office of the Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, coming out next month or maybe perhaps the early, early part of April. And Horowitz is going to be bringing information about the Hillary Clinton email scandal in air quotes again. Anytime I say scandal, just think criminal activity. So you've got all of these various overlapping scandals. Under Obama, the weaponization of the FBI Department of Justice, the conduit of the State Department, that is the State Department, and the uh, all of the aforementioned departments feeding information into Obama on behalf of Clinton, who is working against the political opposition, just shredding the first, uh, the first and fourth amendment, or really the fourth amendment to, to the Constitution, taking away people's civil liberties under the pretext of a national security investigation when there's no Russian collusion. And to top it off, if you don't believe me, you can believe Andrew McCarthy. This is the second link I sent you, Eric. Andrew McCarthy has got a great piece in the, the, uh, um, National Review. The yep. shift memo helps or harms Democrats more than it helps them. And, and, Hagman report too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. There it is. If you're watching this live, now I got to tell you, I don't know if I agree with that though. Uh, I mean, I, I oh, do. Man, but get, I'm saying, uh, and it it does with the information that it gives and whatnot. But will it have that effect? Will it? See, this is the problem. Nunez can can continue to do a good job and put this information out. We need to see the original. FISA warrant applications. Which which I think they are going to have to release. I think so, too. 
because we're not going to be able to, I don't think we're going to really, um, going to be able to put the, the partisan aspect of, you know, these memos aside until the, the original, uh, FISA application, okay. the application yeah. for the warrant comes out. Now, remember the, and, and I want to get this right. The, um, I, I like some of the, by the way, some of the minor corrections in here. I didn't read it. Oh, you, you've got to read this. You can't, you cannot make this stuff up, all right? The uh, initial warrant application and subsequent renewals, and I'm citing from the, the memo, received independent scrutiny and approval by four different federal judges. Now, this is the, the this is the progressive left telling the American people in this document what, and justifying the surveillance. Now, listen to this, because th- this to me is just so precious. They, they take great pains by saying, two, of whom, this is hand-corrected, actually, by them, two of whom were appointed by President George W. Bush, one by President Ronald Reagan, and one by George H.W. Bush, that in the margin over there, as if to say, well, the judges would not um, would not approve such a surveillance application because, look, the FISA court is staffed in, in at least four different occasions here by members, by appointees of the of Republicans, but wait a second, that's not the issue. The issue is taking information to a court of law, and and I, I like Dan Bongino's uh, explanation of this. And to some extent, I, I witnessed this when I again when I worked as an operational asset for the FBI, and I, I witnessed the the search more or the warrant aspect of, of of the operation. Let me tell you something. Even taking it before a, uh, a U.S. judge, a federal judge. You better be doggone absolutely 100% accurate. Because, for example, if I am the informant, and I, the only way I could explain this is, um, from my past experience, if I act as the informant to an FBI agent, and that FBI agent creates a warrant based on my information, it's not the FBI agent, or the actual, it's not really not the FBI agent whose credibility the judge looks at. Who does the judge look at in terms of their credibility? Me, right? Think about this. Just because this goes back to what earlier. If I swear information that makes it into a FISA warrant or a warrant period, and I've, I've, I've been in this position, the judge will say, come here. Come here. Come up. Come over here. Let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, who, who the heck are you? And tell me again, tell, you want to explain this to me? Now, of course, I'm making a light of it, but you get that idea. You get the idea. Believe me. Um, and generally speaking, I got the idea that, that I, all federal court judges are constantly in a PO'd mood, man. I mean, they're in a constantly bad mood. I've, ne- I've never, let me, trust me. I've ne- I'm telling you, every federal court judge, I've, come here, come here, come here. What's this? Just do you know that you you have two these two words the in this? Cross that out there. Okay. But no, the standard of proof. I guess what I'm saying, I'm, I'm making a lot of this. The standard of proof is very high. So imagine taking the FISA court and being an informant to a warrant that's given to a judge. The FBI agent, whether it's Rod Rosenstein from the Department of Justice or whoever it might be, here, 
the judge. And the judge says, do you have, did you check this out? Uh, uh, yep, I did, your honor. And then step aside. You, come here. You, you swear to this, right? At least in my case. Whether it's done in actuality, practically that way with the FISA court, look, I don't know, but, but, uh, the FBI agent has to basically, he's a, is a conduit for the, the warrant. So here's where Sergey Milian comes in. That dossier over here that was contained in this warrant that, that was part of this, they look at Sergey Milian and, and, and ask about the credibility of Sergey. Because is this true in here? Is that do you swear to that? Well, guess what? Sergey is MIA. Nothing to see here, folks. And again, you know, uh, why is that? Where is he hiding? Does he not want to be found? Is, is he intentionally laying low, or are the authorities keeping him out of the way? There's a lot of things that could be going on here, but it's definitely very interesting. And I will read that memo tonight or tomorrow morning. But I have listened to a lot of people's commentary on it. From I heard a little bit of Laura Ingram in the car today, and to what we saw on CNN and the mainstream media over the weekend, I saw a few pieces on the memo, and um, as we said earlier, it doesn't address <clears throat> the claims in the Nunez memo, which Schiff and others, you know, relentlessly talked down when this when, when the Nunez memo came out, which were the claims Andrew McCabe made or testified to under oath, stating that there would never have been a warrant, a FISA warrant without the Steele dossier. They don't refute those claims in the memo from what I've told. It's, it's real, yeah, it's really simple. What this memo proves, and, and you can tell this to all of your progressive family members and friends, what this memo proves, this Democratic mem- Democrat memo, the House Minority memo proves, save for the dossier. Without the dossier, there would be no probable right. cause to get a warrant. Yep. That's it. They admit it in here. And I'm sorry to yell, but that's, no, that's it. it and, and, so, so Okay, so you're telling me that you are filling out a war because I, again, I remember, look, at a small time, I, I didn't go before a FISA court, I was just before a federal court judge. And let me tell you, the standard of, of evidence was pretty, mm-hmm. pretty tough. You don't want to, you, believe me, and you want to get them like after lunch, after the, after the, and after nap time, or whatever. And I'm, I'm making fun, but look, you, you better be right, because you're talking about somebody's liberty, somebody's, and the Democrats, the progressives, are treating this as if this is just a joke. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's it's interesting. I want to get if Peter Tucker yeah, has a take on that. I want to, yeah. you know, I want to take us out with a, a little trip down memory lane. I read about this today when after I saw Diane Feinstein was basically pushed out as far as her reelection in 2018. It looks like the state is going to back a different primary contender, a different Democratic contender. You know, I saw that. Okay, so I, I, I did a little searching on Diane Feinstein, and, I, and this has nothing to do with politics, the national debate, the school shooting, any of this, the FISA memo, but this is interesting, I thought. Diane Feinstein should have never been considered to chair the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And this article is from uh, Marco Malsini of the American Thinker and from 2014. Well, why, did they, why does he say that? He goes on to say, remember back in the 1980s, remember the name Richard Ramirez? He was a serial killer who killed in Los Angeles and San Francisco from June 1984 to August 1985, claiming yep, 14 victims. Yep. He, um, a few Americans had seen anything like it in their lifetimes. Ramirez was so aggressive and cocky, scrolling pentagrams on walls of his victims' homes, even making his final known rape victim swear an allegiance to Satan. 
the public was desperate to see him captured. By July of 1985, Ramirez had already committed some 13 murders, five rapes, and three attempted murders. It seemed police were still far from catching him. Just ask, ask uh, Russ Dizdar about Ramirez, because he, he, he's got a complete... Box of well, I've never heard him. of uh, I've heard of Richard Ramirez in, in the oh, yeah. uh, reign of terror he caused on the West Coast, but I never heard of this part of the story. D- this gets interesting. Go ahead, continue. So it's important. Okay, so you have this killer, and you have the police putting together the evidence. They only have a few pieces of evidence about this killer. One, they knew he per- his preferred weapon was a twenty-five caliber semi-automatic handgun, which ballistics determined had been used in several of the murders. And more importantly, they have discovered they discovered multiple shoe prints at crime scenes. In a particular uh, avia aerobic sneaker with unique a unique tread problem, this information was only known to law enforcement and should have remained so. Anyway, sometime after the murder of Peter and Barbara Pan on August 18th, the then San Francisco mayor Diane Feinstein caught wind of the firearm and shoe evidence <clears throat> and yep, proceeded yep. to announce as much on television in a press conference. Yep. <clears throat> now, why was that such a bad thing to do? The police always, in investigations like this, hold evidence back. They don't release it to the public. This way, uh, things can be verified without, uh, you know, copycats or, or people uh, who are Looney Tunes trying to take credit. There, there's always pieces of information that are there that, you know, you can tie to the killer or to the, the evidence of the killer, uh, and they don't make those things public. You talk about sources and methods, that's exactly what you're talking about here, and there's always that little tidbit of information you've got to hold back or that you... And once yeah. that's out, and that's go ahead. There so, it is. Long story short, Diane Feinstein uh, puts this information out as mayor of San Francisco. Yep. So the leak infuriated the Texas and the, the detectives in the case. They knew the killer would be uh, following media coverage and have an opportunity to destroy crucial forensic evidence. Well, long story short, due to Diane Feinstein's announcement and, and spewing the evidence before she had an okay to do so, the killer killed again. Got rid of the shoes and killed again. And I just thought that was so interesting. Of all the terrible things we've seen Diane Feinstein do and get behind, uh, one of this story is never talked about. And that's when she had all Mayor of her, of reportedly all of her marbles. Mayor of San Francisco botching the investigation of a known serial killer by disclosing details to the public that only the law enforcement personnel knew, putting more lives in danger, more people were then attacked. And uh, there's more to this story we could get into, but we are out of time. When we come back, Stephen Menking will be our guest. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back to this edition of the Hagman Report. Monday. Monday. A manic Monday, actually. Remember that song from the 80s? Feels like a Monday. Yeah, it is a Monday. Uh, it is February 26, 2018. And of course, this past weekend, just to recap very briefly, this past weekend, the Democratic, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the minority memo came out to counter the Nunes memo. Oh boy, it's on now. And we're watching the civil, really, we're watching a civil war, I believe, take place. You've got that. You've got the, the title of the show tonight, or the theme of tonight's show, is our American, or Americans are no longer allowed to ask questions. You've got this massive censorship. And having the opportunity to, to speak with Alex Jones and Roger Stone and others, look, l- l- let me tell you something. It, it's, it's, 
we, we the conservatives, we the patriots, we the people that care about the Constitution and the liberties and the freedoms that, that we hold dear to us, we are being just, just creamed out there in, in the media, the optics. The optics are horrible. And it seems as if no one is really coming to the, no one's responding to the call. And, um, the, the conservative, uh, it's almost like a Saturday night massacre. That's what John, the producer said with respect to YouTube and, and uh, channels being wiped out, taken out. They don't like your content, content. You're gone. That's it. That's it. So it's, it's over. Now, I mean, we're not even talking about like, you can't, you can't, you know, monetize it or put, you know, allow ads to play. No, no, channel no. gone. Gone. Content. Gone. Twitter. Gone. This is the environment in which, in which we find ourselves. Yet there are people in denial about this. And so when you ask questions about the Florida shooting, oh, wait a second, how did this happen? Well, you can't ask that. You've got to take our word for it. No, no, we don't. Uh, hey, student A over here, you said you saw this. Well, let me ask you this. No, you can't ask any questions. How dare you ask any questions? That's not America, and certainly that's not the America that we need to allow exist, nor should we tolerate. Um, that, and of course, folks, don't forget, we've got two separate shows. In addition, in addition to our flagship show, we've got the Doug Hagman Radio Show. That's 9 to 10 Eastern on Global Star Radio, as well as Blog Talk Radio. And if you go to Blog Talk Radio, I ask you to do a favor. Uh, click the follow button. Also, from 2 to 3, John and Joe, the Hagman Daily Show. Also, in the same venues, BTR, as well as Global Star. And, of course, our, our regular flagship show, which airs 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on the Global Star Radio Network, as well as uh, BTR. So, you've got numerous venues. to, But, folks, the the point here, go to HagmanReport.com. The point of reference is HagmanReport.com. There you can check out the articles, a couple of new ones there on the website, uh, original articles, original content, uh, Bill Chapman, uh, and others. Just Brian uh, Shulhavi. I think that's how you pronounce his name, Shulhavi. Anyway, some original content there. And, of course, Peter Chakra's got his own space, and uh, but uh, a lot of content there. So HagmanReport.com. Saw what uh, Jeff Zucker, yeah. the head of CNN, yeah. said today. He has called upon advertisers and tech firms to help find new ways to monetize news content on mobile platforms. As we see, as they say, he's trying to adapt to changing digital landscape. In a Google and Facebook world, monetization of digital and mobile continues to be more difficult, and we sh- would have expected this. He also goes on to say that <clears throat> that we need to find new ways. Uh, I think we need to help from the advertising world and from the technology world to find new ways to help monetize digital content. Otherwise, good journalism will go away. Good journalism. That's the thing. That's what I want to talk about. That's it. Did you hear that? And how much sense does that really make? It doesn't. Responsible journalism. It's um, good journalism. Good journalism. Good journalism. So, but that that really translates into the people who will conform to the story that is being told. That's what it, that's what it means. But, but Joe, I'm going to toss it to you again. Well, I just find it interesting that, you know, in this, we see this trend recently of, uh, some, I guess you'd call them mainstream media organizations, internet media organizations that have been, uh, laying off people. They have been firing people, laying off people, and, and some of them have been closing their doors, which, 
you know, you, you have to ask. We see this push towards the alternative media, and this will be a, a topic definitely appropriate for, for Peter Chauka. But are the models that the mainstream media uh, built themselves under and are operating under right now, are they still effective in this, you know, largely push towards uh, Internet-type news and news outlets and the alternative media? And uh, we always talk about this, can CNN go under? Would they ever go out of business if they lost their advertisers, if they lost all their viewers, if they lost their their revenue um, their revenue supply but is that revenue supply uh, organically generated through a, a capitalist market or are they getting you know payments and handouts from governments and other uh, entities and whatnot but i think it's fascinating to see him jeff zucker come out and say well we need we need google's help we need the government's help to to learn how to make more money off digital advertising it just shows the at least from what i can tell uh, cnn is not very quick to adapt, especially on on the digital markets. I know that they paid millions of dollars for a number of YouTube personalities to come to their network, all of which fell through, and they had since parted ways, even after paying you know these huge sums to these uh, YouTube stars. It doesn't seem like they are going to be able to stay relevant in this uh, with the with the narrative that they're pushing and uh what we see happening on the internet it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to stay relevant especially on the internet as they are primarily based uh, left to the radio and mostly cable tv so you know something we're going to continue to follow and we see it's not just cnn there's many networks having problems there was a few pieces on drudge today that detailed different companies that were laying off hundreds of reporters or or uh, other employees and whatnot so it looks like uh, many people are struggling and as you said and as we talked about this censorship angle. Many YouTubers today woke up to having their channels erased. And I'm starting to build a growing list of, of people who just in the last 24, 48 hours have suffered censorship uh, this way. And some of the... It's only a matter of time. For some us. of the stations are not even really political or, or that controversial. No. It's just the, the some of the subject matter apparently that they are talking about has caught the AI uh, moderators at YouTube or the human moderators at YouTube, and they're shutting down channels. We talked about last Friday, <clears throat> CNN putting out the article on, on InfoWars, and that was kind of up on Drudge for the whole weekend. And, and that's know, the two thing. Two more strikes uh, look, and their channel's uh, done. I want to just say this real quick. You don't know the half of it oh, to yeah. the people out there. You just don't know the half of it. If you knew the other half, the back story half, you would not. I, and the, the only reason I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to talk out of school, uh, with respect to, to Infowars and, and, and Alex Jones, of course. Look, you don't know what they are going through. You've got no idea. And if you did, it would just be abs. You, you wouldn't believe it. And but but we well, remember, too now are feeling it. We're we're going through uh, last year some of the same stuff. Google was a Google AdSense cut off his. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was AdSense four million dollars um, in revenue. I think yeah. you said. That well, it, it, it was actually it was. Um, um, that that's not quite. It was the the ad company that that ran the ads, okay. that monetized his um, his platform, pulled the. Uh, the ability to cre- to create revenue, and what happened was, y- you you base your your uh, growth of your uh, platform, your studio, and and your personnel on projected revenue based right. on past performance. Well, they pulled that, and that was worth you know millions of dollars. So that hurt Infowars horrifically, and yeah. they're more established than many of these other yeah. YouTube channels out there. Yep. So when people are getting 
You know, maybe only thing people have is a YouTube channel, maybe a website attached to that. And when they're getting their YouTube channel uh, ripped down, they don't have any other uh, outlet or, or established uh, platform where they can continue to, you know, put their content out where people can easily find them. It's only a matter so, of time for all of us. Yeah. Unless unless we band together. Because uh, when I was in my conversation with Alex, what do we do? What, what do we do about this? Well, look, you, if you think we're going to be there tomorrow on YouTube, don't think that. We could be gone, but before I even finish this sentence, it's not, look, we, we have to rally together as conservatives, get off our butts and go out there and, and make it known that we're not going to tolerate this. We tolerate too damn much in this country as conservatives. We tolerate the left pushing the homosexual agenda down our throats, the abortion agenda, the murder agenda. We tolerate all of that and we shouldn't. We tolerate too much. We're, we, we, we have to say enough is enough. And by the way, to the, the ankle biters out there, to the, to the morons who believe that they're the, the you know, the, the sole arbiters of, of truth in the, uh, in the alternative universe of, 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 uh, uh, in the alternative media. Well, it's just a matter of time for you too. Just saying, it yeah. really is. But go ahead, Joe. We have our guest with us, Stephen Menking. He was a guest and going to be a guest with us each Wednesday on the Hagman Daily Show uh, in the the last half of the show. And you can find him at ontheobjective.org. He posts his podcast on Hagman Report, and he was on with John uh, over the weekend, and they did a, a great one that was titled. Where's the title here, John? The uh, Two Damascus Moments. From a Holly, from Hollywood's Hell to Heaven's Reward, with John Robertson and Bill Chapman. Uh, Stephen, welcome back to the Hagman Report. Well, it's a pleasure to be back here with you guys, fresh out of YouTube jail, man. You guys are doing hard time. How was that? You feeling okay? Uh, we're doing just fine. A little uneasy with some of the reports today of people uh, not uh, waking up to no channels left to them. So Yeah, it's true. People are getting the Alberino treatment all over the place. It's just, you know, hard for me for the moment to shake the image of uh, Doug, like Tim Robbins at the end of Shawshank Redemption where he comes out of the tunnel. It's like doing the doing the freedom cry. So, you know, good to have you guys back. Uh, I, I, it won't look like that. Think more of Die Hard. Perfect. Okay. Great. But, but i got to tell you, we, we're, no one's going to shut us up. We refuse to be shut up or shut down. If you get a Hagman report, we've got redundancy built in there. As far as YouTube is concerned, consider that just a luxury at the moment. And, uh, I expect to be taken off that any time based on, and, and uh, again, you get another backstory with, with, uh, but go ahead. It's well, what people need to know is that this is a live information battle and it's extremely expensive from a live variety of positions. And so ultimately when we see this censorship, it's hard for me to shake the feeling that to a certain extent it's preemptive uh, to try and close down the channels before the kind of flood of information comes out as it pertains to the IG report and everything else that has been uh, hyped up. And I think it is going to live up to the hype at least more so than sort of past drops either from WikiLeaks, the JFK files, all the rest of this in terms of its, uh, its truth bomb perspective because I think that we're about ready to see some some things really get rolling there, but of course that's speculation on my part. I don't have your sources, Doug, or anything else, and so I'm basing that essentially on what I hear from you as well as from other people. You're but right before on. we before we get going on all this, uh, let's go let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's cover let's cover our bases here. 
Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time and for every second of every day that we have to lift up your name and to speak your name, Jesus, and to proclaim, Lord, your salvation and your righteousness unto a land and unto a people, Lord, who so desperately need you. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out, that we would see a reawakening, a revival of repentance and restoration in this land. Lord, give us a spirit of humility as we press into you, knowing, Lord, that all of the resources available available to us in Christ Jesus are ours by your name. And God, forbid us from not seeking you. Give us a hunger for your word and your will and your face and the desire to come before your throne that could not be quenched, Lord, before we had pressed in fully and abundantly and received from you, Lord, the grace and the faith and all of the spiritual nourishment that's necessary for us to sustain and represent you properly in this generation. God, let your name be glorified in our lives and through our lives. We want your will, your plan, your purpose. We don't want our strength, our own understanding. They fail each and every time, even if they appear to succeed on a momentary basis. It's but an illusion. Anything that we put together, Lord, is insufficient. Anything that you put together, Lord, is more than sufficient. So God, be with us. Station a guard by our mouths. Uh, let us only speak the things that are edifying to you and to your people. Let a call go out, Lord, that Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, that you still save, that your hand is outstretched to pull people out of addictions to pornography and drugs and alcohol and even out of prisons like unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred. And there's so much disunity and chaos. And Lord, we know that you are not the father of that, that you are capable and willing to give us clarity and discernment and peace and forgiveness and the abundant lives that you promised us through Christ. So be with us, station angels around the Hagmans and around their studio. Lord, I pray a special blessing on their broadcast as we proceed here tonight to learn about the things of economics and other topics in that arena. But God, we just give you all the glory first, foremost, and forever. We bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 And thank you for that. And, and folks, that's, this is America. This is America. This is what it's all about. This is about God and country and family. And to be able to do that, when's the last time you heard a prayer on any, any news show? Thank you, Mr. Minkin. Thank you so much. Uh, you're quite welcome. It is an honor and a privilege. And, uh, between us and all the people who are watching, how dare we not pray? How dare we not seek the word of God? Because we need, we need answers. We need marching orders, we need coordination, and we need the fruit of the Holy Spirit in each one of our lives. We don't necessarily have the top-down, man-driven organizational structure to combine and coordinate, but we do have the solutions in isolated packets. And so what we need to do is corroborate and coordinate and cooperate. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm looking so very much forward to being out in Canton, Ohio, with Coach Dave and with you guys at the Occupy 2018 conference. If anybody's going to show up and they happen to want to see me, you know, I'll be in... I'll be in the back corner somewhere probably answering questions about cryptocurrencies but nonetheless you know drop by this is a great opportunity for fellowship and it's going to lead to spiritual breakthroughs in your lives and i would also say ladies and gentlemen that there are operating costs to everything okay and this is not pandering i was not requested to do this but you saw what kind of 
platform decisions that are out of our hands that can lead to your favorite platforms such as the Hagman Report and everything else being taken offline for an indefinite period of time with no proper means of recourse. And so ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to build our own systems. We're going to have to go decentralized, whether it's on the blockchain through an outlet like DTube or from something that is in-house and maintained solely. And in order to do that, it requires your support. It requires your commitment. And so pray, uh, pray about how the Lord would lead you in that area. But I would definitely encourage you to become a Patreon uh, subscriber for for the Hagmans. That that regular uh, contribution, even if it's just fifty cents or a dollar, every every little bit helps. It adds up. So that let let that call go out as well. We all need to need to play our positions. And Doug, Joe, John, Eric, Jackie, everyone at the Hagman Report, even Lady and Theo, they're doing an excellent job. And it's it's high time. It's high time that we support the people who are standing firm and at the tip of the spear in this battle because it really is a battle it's a it's a battle for information it's a battle for truth and i couldn't help remarking when when you're talking about zucker about good journalism going away the only thing that's sustainable right now is the truth the truth is what is going to matter the truth is what is going to come out and when we see these revelations about a wide variety of different things political, economic, spiritual, et cetera, et cetera, the good journalism will exist because the truth will exist because Jesus Christ is the truth, and he's not going away anytime soon unless we make the willful decision to pursue our own paths as opposed to what the Lord has for us and obedience to his Holy Spirit. Amen. That's exactly right, Stephen. And, you know, it is amazing to see uh, this, you know, we are in, in very interesting times seeing this Watching this landscape change as, uh, you know, the, the mainstream media versus the alternative media. And then you have you know, these, uh, liberal narratives that are being pushed versus the truth. And it is a, a constant battle. And then the, the truth is winning out. But this is where we run into problems where, like we talked about, the YouTube censorship. Uh, they're looking to ban certain words, you know, like the crisis actor and whatnot. It is, um, it's a battle. It is a war, and we are fully engaged in it. And this is just the very beginning. It hasn't even gotten ugly yet. What's it going to look like when it gets ugly? When it does get ugly? And uh, it's a it's a good question, Joe. And it's something that can keep people lying awake at nights in in many different capacities. But we have to know that our strength comes from God. And and with your permission, I think it's appropriate to go to go to the Psalms here to read some scripture. And then while we talk a little bit about some econ stuff, which is more in my uh, more in my specialty in my sure. wheelhouse. But first and foremost, let's go to Psalm 64. We're going to read the whole thing, ten verses here. Okay. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil manner. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. For they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him. 
and all the upright in heart shall glory. Gentlemen, I find it interesting as I read this passage that when the psalmist David is talking about the enemy, about the wicked, about the workers of iniquity, he refers to them as only having one tongue. They are speaking with one voice, one voice with many different proclamations. But you will notice that when we see immense and direct coordination of the message, that we can understand what is really happening there, that these are directed and coordinated messaging that has been particularly and precisely scripted in order to achieve an effect. But to your point, Doug, as to what you were going over in terms of the House Minority Memo, they're not doing a great job of that anymore. They can they can do that to direct emotion. That tool is still there, as we've seen following Florida. But generally speaking, it is hard for me to shake the feeling, gentlemen, that we are seeing an opportunity for those of us who know the truth and who understand what's going on to lift up our voices, to be firm, to stand, to occupy, and to give God the glory for what he is doing. If we didn't have the spiritual and supernatural veil that has been covering these occult and wicked activities for so long, if we didn't have that removed, if we didn't have that ripped away, then we wouldn't even be getting a peek behind this. We weren't supposed to know that any of this was going on. And you can only even begin to scratch the surface thinking about our public perspective versus what's going on behind the scenes. So, gentlemen, that's that's just my thought. Um, the Holy Spirit led me to that psalm, and I thought it was incredibly apropos, as only God can do. God's word is instant, in season and out, and we have an advocate with the Father, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So with that being said, any, anything else on that angle? Should we talk some econ? Want to talk cryptos, yeah, precious metals? What do you want? Well, we saw a, a very significant, well, a significant jump in the Dow today. Uh, we, we've seen the last, what, three weeks, four weeks now, have been really volatile with, with one of the worst weeks ever, or recently than one of the best weeks recently. And then today we saw this jump in the market. Uh, and I know we talked about this last Wednesday, Stephen, but let's do this just a little bit. The volatility that we see in the stock market, can we attribute that to anything? Uh, we know that the growth is uh, really, as you said on Wednesday, the, what was it, we could lose half of, uh, you know, go to back down to 20,000, we'd still be in a bull market. Um, well, what's going on with, with the volatility, and are, do you expect to see more of that volatility moving forward? <clears throat> Generally speaking, I would expect the higher volatility to continue, but it's going to continue, it seems like, in a more erratic fashion. And so the situation in the markets is such where liquidity makes a big difference. Now, what people mean when they say liquidity is just how easy it is to do transactions. And so when we saw the market dropping precipitously, what happened was the liquidity just vanished. There were no buyers willing to willing to step up. And so it wasn't quite the same thing as a flood of sellers overwhelming the buyers. It's that there were sellers and no buyers were stepping up to, to put bids in. And so this is a combined orchestration of a variety of different factors. Computer trading and algorithms are involved. Governments are involved. Our own government in particular, as well as the Fed through various, uh, various behind the scenes trading desks like the Exchange Stabilization Fund and the Plunge Protection Team. And ultimately, 
the catalyst that it was that was discussed was the picture on interest rates and what the Fed's going to do and everything else like that. And as for me, we understand the basic calculation. The calculation is we've run up so much debt that if interest rates normalize and go back to, let's say, the 3 to 5% area, and we have to pay 5% on our, on our 20 plus trillion dollars in debt, then we're going to be blowing half the budget on just interest payments on the debt alone in order to keep rolling that over. And so what I think we're going to see is even more debt, even more of this, uh, fiduciary excess excess in the fiat currency department maybe even maybe even some additional quantitative easing but what's going on with with interest rates really is key in terms of touching on the bond market for me i i look less at the at the equity market in particular the dow as a gauge of the overall financial health of the nation's economy and more as a manipulated sentiment indicator and who's really sort of driving the bus so to speak. And it is true that the Dow could go down to 20,000. And if you turned on CNBC or Bloomberg, it would be peeling off red warning signs. But remember that we only got to 20,000 at the beginning of 2017. And yes, it's nothing, uh, it's nothing to shake your stick at in terms of a drop in the drop in the profits and in those valuations. But ultimately on the long term chart, we've been moving up on a, on a, regular steady basis ever since ever since the election and we can point to different sorts of causal factors there but as for me i prefer to focus on hard asset portfolio uh blockchain technology opportunities and other kinds of things in that arena just because of the pure levels of control that are still in place in these institutions and so for me we we still know that the debt is unpayable you guys the the math just doesn't work but what we do know is that this is all subject to a new agreement, a monetary reset, so to speak. And that typically throughout the course of history has only occurred after a large-scale war, at least if we're talking about the past 150 and 200 years, if that's a guide, which it, which it should be. We should, we should look at those as well. But we also need to take a scope of the current landscape. And the current landscape is going to be different from those previous historical examples. So we're not talking about history repeating. We might be talking about it rhyming, though. And that's where the Petro Yuan, the New Silk Road, the One Belt, One Road initiative, and what is going on out there outside of the United States comes into play significantly. So, you know, I know that's not a stock forecast or anything like that, but, you know, we could see it go down, we could see the Dow go down to 20,000 before it, before it shoots up, or we could just see it go right to 30,000. It's all, it's, it's a right. manipulation engine more than anything else. So that's, that's my take on it. And from I'm not, a broad brush. I'm not an economist or, or uh, an economic guy by any means, but if I had to guess, I'd say the Dow's going to 30,000. Just from uh, what we see with Donald Trump in office, the confidence in the market, you know, you have the tax cuts, you have the big growth, and we saw how much it has increased so far since he's taken office. I don't see why it couldn't get up there and even more uh, in in the near future. So, but does that really mean anything nowadays? You know, what, what was the number. stat that Gerald Salente gave us? Ten ninety percent uh, of the stock owners, ten percent of the people own ninety percent of the stock. So right. said if that's, it, you know, you would that's see. a fair it's a fair point. And so the idea is does that 
mechanism of the the price point on the Dow actually translate to wealth in people's pockets. And you'd have to say that only tangentially. But keep in mind that this is what was touted throughout the course of the previous administration, that the rising stock market, and, and even going back before that, this isn't like an Obama thing, this is Bernanke during Bush mm-hmm. and everything else like that, and going back to Greenspan, the idea that rising stock markets are going to create a wealth effect that's more generally felt. I imagine that based on the statistics about the savings accounts and the investments of Americans, people would be much more uh, much more pleased if their wages went up or if their take-home pay went up uh, rather than the stock market going up, which is why which is why you would imagine that the the impact of the tax cuts and people seeing that actual extra result had did more to boost uh, President Trump's uh, official. Uh, approval rating than just the Dow going up, let's say, because of because of that concentration of ownership. And quite frankly, it's the whole thing is part of an inequality generation regime that is uh, almost impossible to get out from under, even under the implementation of policies that are more uh, stringently directed towards redistribution and everything else like that. We know there's a huge problem with the debt. There's a huge problem with the budget. We're getting buried by all sorts of different spending, uh, entitlements primarily. And so something has to give, something has to change. And if if President Trump gets a full eight years, uh, God willing, then we will likely see that transition take place on his watch because I don't know how much longer it can be pushed into the future just because of the construction of the parallel financial and industrial system of international trade that is being uh, built up as we speak by China, Russia, India, and a hundred nations taking part in this One Belt, One Road initiative. Okay. Um, Let's talk about what we have seen with the tax cuts that were implemented last year, or implemented this year, but uh, signed last year, as well as uh, the the GDP. We've seen strong three three plus percent under Trump for the first four quarters, five quarters uh, since he's been in office, and many are projecting it could go as high or above five to six percent <clears throat> growth in, in this first few quarters of uh, 2016. Is that possible? Can we see that kind of growth? Or do you well, if you, ask, if you ask the people who were trying to explain away the very low growth numbers in the previous administration mm-hmm. who referred to the phenomenon of uh, secular stagnation, meaning that for whatever reason, we're just at this permanently low growth plateau and there's nothing we can do about it, despite pumping uh, trillions of dollars into into the economy, so to speak, uh, and through stimulus and spending and quantitative easing and easy money policy and the rest of it. Um, is that possible? Yes. Is that real? Maybe, because these numbers, again, based on the way that GDP is calculated, may not, and I would argue does not, actually reflect the true underlying value of the production of the physical economy, let's say. So because we count debt as an asset, and because our economy is primarily built on just credit cycles and pumping new money into that system, then the GDP is, to a very real extent, uh, under control. However, you, if you make that argument, you could say that, well, maybe it's not under complete control because then why didn't we, you know, paint, uh, paint the results in 2013, 2014 as like five or six percent? And it's maybe to avoid the Potemkin village kind of, uh, kind of approach where everything is, uh, is just 
cleaned and shined up really nicely, but then every, nobody would actually take that seriously. So the estimates have to be within reason, or they at least have to pass the smell test. But remember that this is based on a methodology of accounting, including the way that inflation is calculated, that doesn't necessarily uh, apply to underlying reality for everyday Americans. And they what leave people out the do understand. food and energy, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you take out education and, and yeah. food and energy and healthcare, then yeah, it, you know, prices aren't going up all that much. But if you include, if you include all those things, then you get a different picture. And so the economic statistics are selective and they're designed to be selective to the point where we can use them if they're held consistent as a decent measure of how the same methodology is measuring growth. So the growth figures aren't as bad as like the absolute figures, but nonetheless, we should look at that as a benchmark of, in this case, just trying to drive confidence because that's the idea of behavioral economics, that if people think things are good, then they're going to go out and spend more and more spending makes things good. And for people of alternate schools of economic thought, we would actually prefer people to save more. But of course, when people are buried under debt, there's no way to actually instantiate savings. And we're talking about a situation where most Americans don't have um, enough money set aside for an emergency expense, let alone the ability to generate savings because people have been working multiple part-time jobs. But, you know, we, we don't have to get started on, on all of that because we'll be here for quite some time and buried in some of the minutia and the technicalities. The big picture point, what, what it really boils down to is, yes, we can see better economic activity and more opportunities at an individual level when we get government out of the way as much as possible. Now, however much President Trump's administration removes government from the picture, they're still there more than they could be. It could be optimized more by removing things, but keep in mind that the regulation machine is built, at least in the financial sector, in terms of the banks themselves. We know about you know, Obama's cabinet and Citigroup and, and Dodd-Frank actually being written by the banks. Like, we, we understand these sorts of things, and so we can't let the banks go off by themselves and destroy the system. So we just slow roll it into them extracting as much profit as they can out from underneath everything. So when people are looking at these, my advice is to, yeah, you can note down those headline numbers, but you have to understand what they represent and focus on your own personal economy and your own spiritual economy. That's where it really matters. Like, what does it matter if the economy grows 10% but you can't feed your family, right? There's there's a certain level at which those statistics are indicative of big-picture trends, roughly speaking. But there's also an extent to which people pretty much ignore that straight out anyway. And so if we're trying to sort of peer through the veil, so to speak, and look at those numbers as indications of what's actually happening, we're going to be disappointed more often than not if we're trying to do things in too precise a manner. But if we're just looking at things and we're saying, yeah, things seem to be getting better or things seem to be getting worse, that's the stuff, believe it or not, that actually moves the needle on people's sentiment and approval and different things like that. So you're going to see those numbers painted up. Why? Because of the 2018 midterms. If the, if the Trump team and, uh, and people who are in favor of that control to a certain extent or whatever extent they do, which in my view is significant, but that's largely speculative, if they control that ec- those economic levers or at least the presentation of those economic uh, levers, they're going to they're gonna paint the tape. 
for for obvious reasons. As long as this current system is maintained and persists, it will be manipulated for the sake of advancing the narrative of whoever controls the button to advance whatever narrative they desire. So ultimately, what we need to see in order for a real renaissance of economic activity and human flourishing to take place is the advent of a system that isn't subject to that kind of manipulation. The advent of a system that has truth, trust, and transparency built into it, and ultimately that system in a variety of different degrees is being built, and it's going to be based on the infrastructure of the blockchain, just because that can create a permanent uh, immutable record when it's when it's done correctly of all transactions. So it's like this idea of triple entry bookkeeping or accounting. There's there's a credit, there's a debit, so you have this exchange, but then there's also a universal uh, timestamp, value stamp record of that transaction that anyone can verify easily. And so we're seeing a new system that's sort of being built around and outside of this uh, this decaying thing. And I imagine, gentlemen, that if we got on the inside and we really took a look at the books, we'd say, all right, well, there's no way back for this. We've already hit the iceberg and the bottom of the iceberg and the next iceberg. And so what we need to do is we need to bail out some water as long as we possibly can while building a new boat right next to this one that's sinking. And we've been slow-mo sinking here for a couple decades now, but... The time, the time has come for more advanced uh, maneuvers in this space, particularly when we look at the potential launch of the gold-backed uh, Petro Yuan at the end of March. That's the time frame I've been given. I had V, the guerrilla economist, with me on the objective, and he mentioned that his sources over in uh, China and, and Hong Kong were saying that March 26th was the date. I don't know that for sure, but this has been talked about widely in international economic circles for quite some time. And so if we see the petrodollar cut, get cut loose, then that is an absolute game changer. And typically, like like everything that is, that is promulgated, whether it's the Shanghai Gold Exchange or other initiatives out of the East, it will likely not be a clean break in time. Petro Yuan launches, petrodollar collapses kind of thing. But yet another one of these nails in the coffin, and this is a big nail, guys. This is a really big nail. Yeah. It's like a railroad tie, not just not just a regular nail in this case. So uh, how long? So you're saying that this petro gold back yuan dollar will be launched by the end of March. Well, what I'm saying is that this this official contract is slated to come out over the course of the next month or so, where it will officially open for trading, where uh, countries, uh, corporations, where people can obtain oil, but instead of instead of having to use dollars, this will be a vehicle where they can use uh, yuan, and there's also going to be gold to yuan convertibility of these instruments there's there's some financial pipelining here but what's most important is that there are there's going to be presented a viable alternative for uh for countries to circumvent the petrodollar more than already is happening through bilateral trade agreements where it's just one country talking to another let's trade let's not use the dollar because it's just us like we don't need to go through this third party so what we're talking about is the gradual um, dissolution of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, or at least the sole reserve currency. And, and what things look like on the other side of that is anybody's guess, really, and people have plenty of guesses about it. But ultimately, this is a key hinge point from an event 
standpoint that really solidifies the financial tubing, so to speak, of this alternate system. It's like the foundation has been built with the institutions in terms of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, et cetera, et cetera, the CHIPS payment system. And now this particular contract is like when you turn on the gas, the piping is already laid, but you're turning on the utilities now that are going to enable this flow of resources circumventing the dollar. And so what we would see is, or at least what I would expect, is countries would begin to move some of their funds in that direction, but there would be talks essentially behind the scenes in terms of this because the U.S. could respond, and the idea would be that in the past we would have neocons and neolibs, the war hawk imperialist types, who would say, well, you better not do that or else we're going to bomb you. But because in this situation it's sort of open to everyone, if we were going to do that, we'd have to go at it with China. And I don't think we want any part of that, really, hopefully, if sanity is prevailing at any level whatsoever. But, you know, we're going to see more attempts to stir things up in Syria, stir things up in North Korea, and there's even a faction of our own government that would still want to salivate and take us to war as quickly as they possibly can. And so it's up to us, each individually, to understand what's going on, to speak the truth, and to advocate that, you know, we don't want this kind of solution. We want peace. We want peace in our time. We want our troops brought home. We want a less interventionist foreign policy footprint. We want influence, but we don't need to be projecting power and to manipulate control, all to preserve a financial system that has bankrupted most of America at the expense of the elite people who have been inside the club and standing at the fire hose, siphoning off as much as they can get every time there's any transaction made or exchange of value. So now is a moment for freedom and for clarity. And what I'm praying for is that in all of these avenues that we're going to see a moment of conscience, a moment of clarity where everyone sort of just comes to their senses and in a hinge point of awakening acknowledges that what we've been doing is wrong or maybe there's a better way. And it turns out that if this moment happens at a time when there actually is a better way, then we might see a significant change that would be the most important thing geopolitically that's happened in my entire life. I don't know about you guys, but from a cultural, from an economic, and from all these perspectives, I am just hoping and praying that I get – I was born in 1988. I'm going to be 30 here in a week's time or so. I am just hoping and praying that I get some time to live in a really free country that doesn't try to enslave every one of its own citizens as well as project power around the globe. I would be so grateful to God to live in a society that actually valued human life properly from conception to the exit of this world wherever and whenever that takes place. I'm pining for it so strongly, and I know that I'm speaking to people right now who feel that same way, not in a, oh, let's go back to the old days kind of sense, but can we please acknowledge that we need to restore righteousness? It starts at the spiritual level, but it applies to all different things. In Proverbs, Solomon writes that an unjust weight and measure, cheating, measuring things wrong, fraud, it's an abomination before the Lord. Incredible. 
Incredible thing. Why would God care about that? Well, he cares about the truth. He cares about righteousness. He cares about people, each one, desperately with a love so vast that we couldn't even begin to put our finger on it if we tried. We can't even imagine it. And so I'm not saying that the new system that's being built up over in uh, over in China and over in the East more generally is like necessarily this paragon of virtue and uh, and that everyone should flock to it because everyone's such good guys over there. You know, that's not what I'm saying. And I'm also not saying that everyone in America is evil and is totally corrupt and it needs to get wiped off the wiped off the face of the planet before anything good can come. I don't think that either one of those uh, broad brushes is an appropriate way to paint, gentlemen, because people are different, but people are also the same at many levels, at many levels. We want an opportunity to work, an opportunity to provide for our families and we want our, an opportunity for our kids to be safe and our families to be safe and to grow up without these existential threats. Uh, we know that tragedies happen. We know that hard times are guaranteed to us, but oh, what a, tr what an incredible blessing it would be to live in a world where there is at least one viable alternative through the, through the kingdom of God to just the grotesque spiritual malaise and powerlessness that we see everywhere in our society. And so, like I said, big picture here, from an economic standpoint, the institutions and the structures that underpin what we know are themselves changing. Or at the very least, there are alternatives being built that have the potential to change the way the entire game is played. And even beyond that, to change the game literally. Not We're not playing this anymore with a different set of rules. Now we're playing this. And so it's incumbent upon each one of us to do our own homework, to understand what's happening, because none of us is going to have the clearest picture. We're not going to be able to see everything through to the end and to understand exactly the implications of this decision or that in the aggregate, because the system is too complex. Only God could reveal to us what that would be, and he hasn't done that for me yet, so I'm, I'm here in, in speculation land. But I can see it out of the corner of my eye, gentlemen. If we stand up, if we press into God, if we seek his face, that there will be alternatives that are constructed for the financial system, for the media and communication system. There will be alternative platforms and channels and everything that will be built in service of the truth. God is not going to leave this generation without a testimony of his goodness and his righteousness and his faithfulness. And by the grace of God, each one of us is sitting here providing a testimony of what God can and will do in our lives. And ultimately, that's what that's what matters. The economic stuff, as I can see it, is just one of the avenues where I notice that these trends are really taking hold and that if we can see through to the stuff and the and the principles and the events that are truly meaningful, then we won't be caught offside. Don't get caught offside in this. Don't get trapped in a in a paradigm that doesn't even let you acknowledge or look at alternatives. We have to do our own due diligence, our own homework. And again, for any of these decisions, even investment decisions, you know, believe it or not, God cares about your portfolio. He also would put you in a position to be used as a conduit of resources to ministries, to people in need, to everything else. If you have a heart for giving, then God will put you in a position to give. And if you don't have a heart for giving, then one of the best things you can do is that God would transform your heart and give you 
the mode of a cheerful giver. Because right now, we are in a situation where people are in dire straits. People need so much help, and it's hard to feel like we're capable of making an impact. But God knows exactly what he's called us to do. God knows exactly what we should be focused on in this hour, in this moment. And we've been called, gentlemen, brothers and sisters, for such a time as this. So whether you're looking at the economic side of things, whether you're focused on that or whether you're focused on medicine or whether you're just focused on providing for your family, God has a role and a responsibility that only you can fill. And now is the time to seize that opportunity. It doesn't matter what else you've done in your entire life. Now is the time. There is a role for you to play in the body of Christ that isn't going to come uh, free of free of charge. You're going to have to lay down your old habits, your old lifestyle. You're going to have to give all of that to God and lay it at the feet of the cross. And trust me, this is a trade-off. If we, when I was when I was on Joe with you and John on the Hagman Daily Show, we were talking about last week on Wednesday the trade-off of the temporal for the eternal and storing up treasures in heaven. What if that was our primary investment thesis? Not what does my portfolio look like, but how can I use the resources that have been given to me by God at my disposal right now to bear fruit for the kingdom of God and to store up treasures in heaven? Isn't that really the kind of return that we should all be focused on? Not what we can do to have something more comfortable in a couple decades, but what are we going to do with what we have at our disposal that's going to last for all eternity? That is the infinite return that should be the priority of all of us. And we need to seek God's wisdom and the discernment of the Holy Spirit in order to figure out how best to make that happen. And all I'm saying is press into the Lord and we can't afford to close our minds to the different things that are going on. If you, if you don't pay attention to the economic sphere, that, you know, it's, it's okay, but get enough knowledge, get enough wisdom to be able to recognize as, as things are changing. You don't have to spend hours and hours on it each day. Lord knows, you know, people don't have that time. People have bills to pay, health conditions to worry about, a family to provide for, and, and the things of this life that we've been called to do. But please, Please, ladies and gentlemen, I implore you, now is the time to get educated, to do your research, and that requires having and accessing the incredible news and information sources like we have here at our disposal at the Hagman Report. These guys are completely genuine. They're following their calling. They're doing everything that they can to present you with as much content as possible for your edification, for your education, for your understanding, so that you can be equipped to go out there and make your own contribution. And if, if, if all you can do is pray, then you have more than enough power to make a huge difference in this. Because we have access through prayer to Jesus Christ. His is the name above all names. There's nothing that can stand before him. Nothing. No lie, no scheme, no plan, no plot, no work of the enemy, no attempt to rob you and steal from you. And even if that, those actions have been taken and you feel like you have lost something, God is able to restore. God is able to deliver. And so call upon his name, get informed, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else, including knowledge of economic affairs, if, if, <laughs> if you so choose, will be added, will be added unto you. But now is a time for awakening across all of these different domains. We're yeah. going to get an opportunity to share some great, incredible truths. And I am so thankful 
to be able to speak with you guys and your audience about these sorts of things because we are living at a time that history will remember one way or another, and I know that you both agree with that. Yes, we do, Stephen, and uh, that's very well said. We only have a few minutes left. I wanted to make sure we get your take on this. Uh, the latest with crypto- cryptocurrencies, we have seen you know, Bitcoin take a huge hit over the last 60 days, and it's slowly climbing back up, and other coins like it uh, seem to be climbing back up. What do you see happen with cryptocurrencies? Is is it still a good investment, a strong investment? Um, Generally speaking, I can say that in the interest of full disclosure, I do own cryptocurrencies, and I haven't been writing about them as much recently because my focus in the space has been in starting a cryptocurrency asset management fund that is now that is now up and running. So I have to give like proper disclosure about all that. I am I am involved in the space. I do have these positions both personally and through the fund where I manage the portfolio, and that should be enough to tell you that I think that there are still some great opportunities out there, but people have to be extraordinarily discerning in this kind of space because there are fewer regulations, fewer controls, fewer prohibitions, and so you see sort of grander scale uh, grander scale frauds and failures and, and greater volatility in swings. Generally speaking, when I'm looking at it, the total market capitalization of the cryptocurrencies is still under $500 billion. That's down from a high in December. It got up um, to around $750 billion. So it's a pretty big swing, all things considered. But I do know and I do believe in the investment thesis that more money and more capital will be coming into this space as different cryptocurrencies and different tokens that different companies have created demonstrate their capacity to perform services and to solve problems in a better way than the existing uh, existing solutions that that are present. So if you want to send remittances, you know you don't have to eat 20% and pay that to Western Union and and have it back to your family in a matter of weeks when you could send value through. Litecoin and it could cost you almost nothing and be there almost instantaneously. So there are real use cases that are being built on top of this technology and I, I see that there are going to be tremendous value propositions. There's also going to be some things that go to zero and not just a couple of them. We've already seen billions and billions of dollars get wiped out by things that were essentially pretty transparent Ponzi schemes and frauds. Uh, the most high profile one recently was uh, BitConnect. Um, that was a that was a total scam. But in any case, you have to do your research. If people are interested, again, in figuring out how to get started and maybe want a step-by-step guide, back when I was on in December, I offered uh, I offered to send across a presentation that I put together for Coach Dave and his crew, and I could I could still do that. Just uh, people can send me an email on the objective at gmail.com and let me know that you uh, heard me on the Hagman report and that you want to take a look at that power of that presentation and I'll send it across for you. So uh, okay. I can't give any specific kind of investment advice, but I'd be more than happy to answer any kind of questions that I can in that arena. I think that there are great opportunities. And if you want a technical trigger so you can put me on the record about something, I think if we see 12,000, uh, if we break, if we get above 12,000 in Bitcoin here in the next in the next couple of weeks then we'll be sort of poised for another run up. If we get back below 9,000 then we might be in the the doldrums for a little bit more and of course doldrums are relatively speaking considering that a year ago at this time Bitcoin was around $1,000. Yeah, absolutely. Stephen, we have just about 30 seconds left. Any upcoming shows, guests 
you want to talk about or promote before we? Um, we'll definitely definitely check out the broadcast I did with Bill Chapman and, and John Robertson. That was a fan, that was a fantastic one. That's up primary on the on the objective page. On the objective.org is the website. Definitely subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow our Twitter feed. Just type in on the objective and we'll come up. God bless you guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. First guest out of YouTube jail. Hopefully we hit the <laughs> ground running and uh, give you guys all of the all of the praise. Thank you so much and just give honor and glory to God for these opportunities. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it. Great job, as always. Folks, we're right back. Uh, you're listening to the Hagman Report. So we're going to be back. Event uh, just incredible information. If you if you listen, and I hope you did listen to that. Uh, the the uh, you just let him go. You know, a guest like that, you just kind of stand out of the way. Hey, when we get back, I just want to make a, a clarification. I'm going to thank Bob and Maggie, just tremendously great people. Uh, thank you so much for the emails you sent. I want to uh, clarify something on the other side. You're listening to the Hagman Report. This uh, great job by Stephen Making. Stay right where you at. Network break. Final hour on this Monday edition of the Hagman Report on this what February twenty sixth. The month is yeah, just flying by. Days. March will be here in just a, a day or two, and we will uh, be moving on into spring. We've had spring weather around here, so it feels like spring. But anyway, well, what about anything above thirty two degrees yes. is like spring. Right? When I say spring, I'm you talking forties and fifties. So yeah, that's uh, that's about right. You know, I just want to clarify something I said the first hour, and thank you, Bob and Maggie. You know, it's um, uh, Bob, law enforcement, very familiar with law enforcement, Bob and Maggie, and um, a couple of. Uh, uh, from, from Bob saying, you know, the deputy at the school, at the Parkland school, was either told to stand down or a coward. And, and I agree with that because, uh, in, in fact, uh, a little bit of a, a uh, little bit more of a, an explanation. Both Bob and Maggie, both of us cannot fathom anyone armed and trained to not automatically grab any gun, any weapon, and enter, you know, go to the point of, of, uh, where the firing is, is taking place, where the shots are being are done. And, and I totally agree with that. My approach to this is we have been lied to about so much. I don't know what the evidence is. And and so I totally agree with that statement. Where I'm coming from is, man, release the the video so we can can at least have a point of reference because we don't know anything really outside of the the varying eyewitness accounts. And, And this goes for Las Vegas too. This goes for all of these events. You know, America right now is starved for the truth, in my view. We oh, are yeah. starved for most people. What's really, exactly. And, and you tuned to this particular show. What are you looking for? The truth. You, you don't want some spun, biased, um, necessarily biased opinion. You're looking for the truth. That's all we care about. And speaking of truth, we've got just a great friend of the program and, and a, a marvelous writer and somebody who contributes a lot to this show. And that's Peter Barry Chalka. Chalka uh, Peter Barry Chalka, of course, uh, has written uh, really the equivalent, I think, of two length, uh, full-length books like War and Peace in terms of articles at and for the Hagman Report at HagmanReport.com. That's HagmanReport.com. It's up to 90, 90 articles. 
There it is right there on the right-hand side. Uh, check out the content by Peter Barry Chaka. With that, welcome, sir. Welcome to the Hagman Report. Thank you, Doug. Good evening. It's great to be with you again. Hey, it's great to it's great to have you. Um, a lot of stuff to get into, and uh, I apologize. My weekend was really, shall we say, um, oh, it was it was a stressful weekend. So uh, a lot of going in numerous directions. So I did not have a chance to speak with you. But where are we at uh, here? Where do you want to? Well, where do you want to start today with your uh, with what you've got? Well start with a personal note uh, I, I feel like tonight I feel like I'm vibrating <laughs> from future shock uh, this last week uh, I mean things are just getting crazier and crazier so in the past week of course another mass shooting in this case 14 high school students blown away and three adults uh, exposing over the next several days the complete and total failure uh, from top to bottom of law enforcement, from the FBI on down to the local police, and then also including the authorities at the school level in that Florida district where uh, it was decided because of political correctness or something that too many uh, minority students were being captured by the uh, criminal justice system for bad behavior, so therefore... The solution is uh, not to hold them accountable so they wouldn't show up on the statistics. And the perpetrator in this case, uh, Nicholas Cruz, uh, was apparently not held accountable because of this insane policy. And then uh, even more surprising, it probably shouldn't have been, but more surprising to me was within really a day of this shooting, the, the full-spectrum assault targeting the Second Amendment a total web of lies surrounding the event so that uh, the blame is now being put on the National Rifle Association and on legal law-abiding gun owners. And basically we're being told to tear up the Constitution or a significant part of it, the Second Amendment. And now we see uh, the response of, of the uh, social media attempts to bring down the NRA and gun rights by targeting uh, the association of the NRA with private businesses that are being told to or, or, or threatened, uh, intimidated into ending any kind of business association with the legal NRA. So we really have a big fight on our hands there. But, of course, later on in the week, the release of the Democrat memo, and I heard you mention in the first hour that you spent a large part of this weekend going over that with a fine-tooth comb. So I will, I'll leave your the analysis of that to you as you've been doing on your morning program as well as on the Hagman Report. And I guess I'd like to start by just drawing the lens back to a bit of a wide-angle view, uh, including the history, as I, I try to bring in, the history starting at the middle of the 20th century, much of which I experienced personally, and I, I don't intend to make a boring history lesson out of it, but a few people have commented uh, on the YouTube videos and to my Twitter that they actually appreciate a bit of a historical perspective because, of course, we no longer get history in public schools or probably even at the university level unless maybe you're specializing in history as a major. And... Uh, and also the history of things that never really makes it into or that make it into the history books is really interesting, especially when we consider, again, that there's nothing new under the sun. So largely what we're experiencing today, uh, we can see precursors 
earlier on, even in our lifetimes, if we're old enough. And of course, if uh, if we don't want to learn from history, then we're going to be cursed to keep repeating it. But uh, when I tweeted out uh, my my uh, tweet today about this broadcast, I put a title on it. And of course, I have been calling it Between the Lines, and it probably will largely remain that. But um, I, I added this, Between the Lines, A New Dawn for Old Journalistic Values. And I owe credit to the latter part of that to uh, fellow journalist Celia Farber, who came up with it. And when she did, I thought that really says a lot, A New Dawn for Old Journalistic Values. Because as I've been delving in recent weeks into the history of uh, alternative media, even in my lifetime, which is uh, talk radio in the 1950s and 60s, that represented actually old traditional journalistic values of probing independent reporting, uh, heeding the public's interest and the public voice. And uh, I think that's what we're we're trying to achieve again now. That is obviously what many elements of the so-called alternative media are working with. That's what we are working with on this broadcast and at HagmanReport.com, and it's what many, probably millions of our fellow citizens, citizen journalists, and um, and others are doing to try to bring out truth. So we're not creating something completely new. We are delving back into the past to tap into some of the, the best traditions of the United States, which which really go back to the founding fathers. You know, a pamphlet like uh, Tom Paine's Common Sense was uh, a form of journalism and analysis, really, distributed in pamphlet form. And, and, and the free press was obviously enshrined in the Bill of Rights. So we have a lot of history to work with. But uh, as we Peter, let me ask you a question. I apologize for the interruption, but we're, I was thinking about this this weekend. The, the very everything you just mentioned, but what I can't put my finger on with any degree of precision is where do we go off the rails? Where we went from that to today? Was there a moment? Was there an event? Was there where? Do, what happened? Well, originally, before some of the news started breaking this past week. I was going to lead tonight with a list that I started writing, which would pretty much answer or help to answer that question, I think. And it's uh, how did we wind up where we're at today? And we've touched on many of these things before, many of these factors. It's a recurring theme. But uh, one of them that I put at the top of my list uh, or near the top of my list actually... uh, came out in, uh, early this morning a, an email popped into my inbox and it was about a brand new scientific study that came out uh, published in a reputable journal and I'm looking for my note on it here and of course uh, why am I not finding it it's on a it's on a computer page here let me turn to another monitor if I can find that page yes it was from the uh, American Association for Psychological Science, and a brand new study has been published titled, People Rationalize Policies as Soon as They Take Effect. Now, just read the first two sentences from this. People express greater approval for political outcomes as soon as those outcomes transition from being anticipated to being actual 
according to new research published, blah, 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 in a reputable scientific journal here. Findings from three field studies indicate that people report more favorable opinions about policies and politicians once they become the status quo. Now, I related this directly to Obamacare. An abomination like Obamacare was extremely unpopular before it was enacted, and it took three or four years to really kick in after it was voted in by uh, the Democrat Congress on a party-line vote in March of 2010. And, and it was very, very unpopular throughout that period of about four or five years while it was debating, being debated, and then before fully went into effect, affecting Americans' lives and health. So it was about two to one negative in public opinion polls. Once it became the law of the land, and of course also started to hook millions of people on uh, the government taking care of their health care in a way that hadn't been done before, the closest thing we've ever had to socialized medicine. The polls now are showing, and I think probably accurately, that more people favor Obamacare than are against it, a largely complete turnaround. So all you have to do is look back into recent history, decades that many of us, Doug, you and I, certainly are old enough to remember. Uh, I, I remember the 60s very well it, with the Democrat Congress then in 1965, the uh, imposition of Medicare and Medicaid, which were unpopular at the time, as was Social Security, by the way, in the 1930s when that first was rammed down our throats in another Democrat Congress. And, and pretty much everything since then, whether it's done by the courts that have uh, usurped more authority in our times, by executive orders, which, of course, Obama uh, was famous for. Uh, you know, look at the DACA thing. I mean, for, for years, through his career until 2012, President Barack Hussein Obama said he didn't have the legal authority to do what he finally wound up doing with the DACA legislation for the so-called dreamers. Well, he did it by executive order, and now it's, it's, it's like it came down from on high. People are so used to it that, again, according to public opinion polls, a majority of Americans actually support giving a path to citizenship to these uh, one or two million, however many, illegal immigrant, quote, children, some of whom may be as old as their late 30s by now. So once these things become the status quo, our memories are short. We forget what it was like before when we had more freedom. And and this is now the status quo. And anybody who doesn't agree with it is on the outs. They're on the outside looking in. They're conspiracy theorists. They're, you know, they're even worse names are, are called to those of us who want to respect history. Yeah, I would also note uh, last night uh, there was a premiere of uh, Mark Levin, talk show host Mark Levin's new program on Fox News. Interesting format for an hour. He interviewed one-on-one -on -one, one person, Dr. Walter Washington, 81-year-old uh, African-American conservative economist, a, a brilliant man who's written, uh, I think, 10 books, uh, hundreds if not thousands of articles, uh, a newspaper column for many years. It was a fascinating conversation, but one of the first things Dr. Washington said was that uh, the reason things are so messed up today and why so many people 
have their heads in in the sand, I'll put it politely, is, to paraphrase him, because the government is taking care of them and and feeding their own self-interest to have somebody else do it for them, pay for it for them, give it to them, etc. So that kind of outlook uh, and, and organization of society has certainly taken hold. And it started with uh, the New Deal under socialist President Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s. And it has pretty much continued uh, with fits and starts, sometimes two steps forward, one step back. But it seems to be on a, a turbocharge momentum now, even with the Republicans supposedly in power in both houses of Congress and the presidency, all we get is bigger government, less freedom, more socialism. And this was a theme of Mark Levin's program last night, his conversation with with Dr. Walter Washington. I, I, I recommend people look for a transcript of that or a, a replay of that, or maybe it's online, but it was extremely valuable. But we are in very, very deep now. And uh as I said, we've got the fight of our lives on our hands right now with the Second Amendment. And then, of course, I also well, caught... Uh, and, and Peter, you make a great point. Sometimes I think people forget. We, we meaning the party of freedom, that being the Republicans, although that doesn't mean much, we <laughs> hold the House, we hold the Senate, we hold the executive office. What in the world? Why can't we get anything done? And I guess the answer to that is party labels don't mean a damn thing. It's, well, and it's the, power, the power of the deep state and the shadow yeah. government, as we've been talking about, for the better part of this past year, one of the things President Trump's presidency has brought out is the enduring uh, power of these forces, which we have previously labeled things like the establishment or the powers that be or, you know, the New World Order or whatever. And the latest term we're using now, because I think it's very accurately descriptive, is the shadow government and the deep state. And they are still pretty much running the show. Uh, it, it seems at times that President Trump is a titular president. He's certainly trying the best he can with the support of, of many millions of us out here at the grassroots. But this is an entrenched uh, cabal at, at the bureaucracies. And I, what is it? The figure is like there's 22 million Americans who work for governments, local, state, and federal the vast majority of them, certainly at the federal level, the vast, vast majority are uh, Democrat socialists. I mean, this is this is their bread and butter. There are very few jobs except for government jobs, basically, where you can put in a couple of decades of uh, so-called work, retire early with huge pensions and benefits, which will stay with you as long as you remain alive. That's plans of that, benefits of that sort are no longer the case in most of the private sector, but, you know, it goes on in the government sector. And, I mean, that's one vested interest they have in seeing the status quo maintained. But, of course, there are many more nefarious forces motivating the players, especially at the top. And as the layers of the onion are peeled back with things like the memos and the work that Sean Hannity um, and and the others, the other journalists, the real journalists are doing the work that you're doing, Doug and Joe, to 
to expose what's been going on in the past year. We're, we're getting an incredibly clear view, really for the first time in probably ever, of, of the depth of this corruption and evil. But, uh, you know, will we be and, able and, to... And, and Peter, to, to, to my point, and, and I think that's the most important story of our lifetime, what we're watching is the implosion of the deep state to, to some extent, at least the exposure of the deep state. It's it, People cannot deny any longer, at least I don't think they can, the existence of a deep state, that, that permanent bureaucracy that we that we see. And so that's where we're at right now. That's why I look at things like the uh, uh, FISA abuse, the, the Title One FISA abuse, the surveillance of, of the of the Donald Trump campaign and Donald Trump himself, even after the election. This, to me, is the most important story of our lifetime. And and I don't do you, do you would you agree with that? Because oh, absolutely. You, you live through. Look, your experience and, and folks, Peter Barry Chowka, follow him on Twitter at P Chowka. In fact, just go to Hagman Report and, and all of his articles are there, as well as on American Thinker. But um, to me, uh, you lived through Watergate, uh, and, and to a lesser extent, we saw the the uh, impeachment or, or the uh, or the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Uh, all of that pales in comparison to what we're seeing right now. It, it, Absolutely. Yeah. So there was also a period uh, in the late 60s and early 70s when, uh, if you want to call it the deep state that was in power then, was actually uh, looking at the forces on the left or the forces for ending the Vietnam War, which were nothing like the left is now. I mean, that that was... Uh, in, me- in large measure, a mainstream movement. You know, Martin, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, for example, was a leader of the anti-Vietnam movement. And uh, although he had some left-wing tendencies in his background, uh, he, his beliefs and speeches today would probably put him in the Republican camp if he was still around today, as would President John F. Kennedy. But uh, you know, it, it has shifted, and so we lived through some very interesting and difficult times of surveillance then. Then Watergate, which targeted uh, Richard Nixon, and uh, I'm trying to remember where I heard the reference to this book, Silent Coup, in a, in a program I was accessing uh, within the past week. That was a book that came out in 1992, which I read at the time, which had a very different take on the the powerful forces that were allied to take down Richard Nixon, who ultimately uh, didn't do anything worse than had been done by his immediate predecessors or by a number of his his predecessors going way back, and yet he was forced from office. He, he was not actually impeached, it's interesting to recall. And uh, you mentioned the, the Clinton experience, Bill Clinton. Last night on Fox News was part six, the second to last part of their seven-part series, Scandalous, which I've written about uh, repeatedly, including recently at the Hagman Report. And that series has only gotten better and better with each part because it's getting really to the heart of the issue, which is the actual impeachment of President Bill Clinton. And it reminds us, even those of us who were paying attention then, the uh, unbelievable level of corruption and criminality of both Clintons and the series actually goes up only until 1999. You could easily do another seven plus parts taking the story up to the present time in what uh, Hillary, when she finally emerged, and Bill Clinton did in the first decade of this new century and right up until today, 
2018, presumably, but maybe we'll, someone will get around to that eventually. But there's, there's no loss of information now to, to inform and enlighten us about what's going on. But, you know, I, again, I've had the feeling in the last week that despite trying to keep up with this, at literally every waking moment. I mean, today, for example, uh, I, as you know, I'm, I'm a late riser because I'm a night owl and I stay up until dawn. Well, today I got up at before 8 a.m. in order to start preparing for this broadcast. So I'm reading everything I can get my hands on. I'm monitoring cable news channels, uh, monitoring Alex Jones, Michael Savage, a few other shows, internet programs. I'm listening to the first two hours of your show. And uh, it, it really has become impossible for one person to keep up with it. And I think uh, the computer will probably emerge in the very near future who will one-up all of us and be able to process this information and maybe spew something out which will be able to to process and uh, give us some insight into it, although probably not because the people programming such a device are probably not going to be the good guys. But... You know, it, it really is is almost out of control now, if not totally out of control. And um, yeah, all I can yeah, say again I, is, hold on to your hat, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. It's and to think, you know, in the past week, what we've seen we, before. You know, sometimes I, I ask myself, um, or I, I I sit and I, I ponder: Did we have the the events that we see that that are being reported upon? Um, did they exist 20 years ago? Just even 15 years ago, at the rate they are, at the rate we're seeing them today, and we just didn't know about it because of the because of the the lack or the infancy of instant communications. So, Not at all. Okay. No, there, I, there's no way. I mean, as long as I've been um, alive and old enough. Right. To care about the news, follow the news, and then work with the news as as a journalist, even as a, a young student, we've never seen anything like this. And I mean, I've been deeply involved in a number of stories, politically and otherwise, in the past, going back decades. And even with the relatively simple and, and primitive means of staying in touch and getting information, then. I was always intensively involved. I had a, a circle of contacts. I had a Rolodex. Remember those? And it was, I had to get a second one because I had so many of those cards in there. I still go with people, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> with people's phone yeah. numbers. And, and that's how we communicated by phone, by U.S. mail. Then the fax machine came in and then finally the internet. And it, it is just taken off with uh, a supercharge now. And, and and part of this, I think, is um, I don't know if there's a guiding hand behind it somewhere, a hidden hand, but I think it 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 has sort of a, a purpose, whether it's intended or indirect, in that it's blowing people's minds. The so-called average person who's intelligent, has a lot of common sense, and is interested, is probably having a totally impossible task of trying to make sense out of any of this, assuming they have a, a real life and a job and a family and responsibilities, and maybe they have, what, an hour or two today, a day, if, if that, to try to delve into these things. I, I don't know how they could make sense out of it, especially if, as, as most people still do, they, they look to the mainstream media or the mainstream press 
for some kind of information base, which, as we know, it no longer deserves that uh, that respect or or that utilization because it's completely, almost totally, 100% corrupt, lying, full-spectrum assault propaganda matrix that is completely brainwashing a large percentage of the American people. You're exactly right. It's kind of interesting to follow the gravitation of the uh, the, the corporate media from, from the corporate media as being the the source of um, the, the the largest demographic, uh, the source of, of news to now social media, and then that leaves the corporate media, the heads like uh, uh, like you read earlier, Joe. Uh, you know, what are we what are we going to do? How are we going to monetize? Best monetize? Uh, yeah, from Zucker. Right. Do they the need help from government yeah, and, yeah. and tech companies to help him generate new uh, revenue sources of digital content? Exactly. Which which fills into the the area uh, that we a big big discussion last week and this week about censorship of social media, censorship mm-hmm. of YouTube. So all of this, uh, if they can't if they can't survive. Uh, they, they need to shut us up, they, right? You know, so they, they want to shut you up. They want to shut us up, and, and this is what I—the uh, unbelievable backstory to what's to, to really the, the stuff taking place. To, you know, with uh, with Infowars in terms of um, how they are making them into just such an incredible pariah, uh, at least optically, which is so—it's unfair. At, at, at the very least, it's unfair. Um, it's been a multi-pronged uh, story in the past week. You know, we mentioned the the shootings, of the Democrat memo, <clears throat> and another aspect uh, of this story, and they're all related, of course. And this, especially to the shooting, is this mounting s- naked attempt at censoring, at suppressing free speech as it's being utilized and expressed by millions of people now in social media and in alternative media such as what Alex Jones is doing and and like what you are doing what we are doing and by the way I see that uh, the program has returned to live streaming on YouTube tonight the Hagman report which uh, right am I correct in that yeah it, uh, yeah. we, we are back up on YouTube. We haven't made a big deal of it because, oh. Peter, we could be done at any moment. We saw today a number of channels that were taken off for no apparent reason, just completely oh. destroyed. I hope but I didn't speak out of school there. but I, I <laughs> We were taken out of nah, the YouTube no jail, and uh, we decided you know, we're going to stream on YouTube at the same time, continue to stream on our website through Global Star. Good. So multi-platforms, yes. But you know, right? It, you know, the hammer can fall again at any moment. And I'm getting direct messages on Twitter. I'm reading on Twitter and and elsewhere in social media that uh, people are having people are having u- users are having trouble accessing their news feeds, or they can't they can't find Alex's live. Uh, stream or you know who knows what's going on and we don't know what's going on because this is the private corporate sector supposedly that's playing these games and by the way when when you pull back that lens at history and you go back to as far as World War II and the 1930s beforehand we see the word fascism came out of that period. Fascism was really originally applied to Benito Mussolini and fascist Italy which was in sync with what Adolf Hitler was doing in Germany. And the classic definition of fascism, authoritarian government, matched up with a cooperative, huge, monopolistic uh, corporate entity involved in uh, manufacturing or 
spying or concentration camps or drugs or whatever. And, and that is classic fascism. So uh, I, I don't know if we can use that term today uh, to describe what we're seeing, but, you know, it looks like it's coming awfully close. We know the origins of, of these uh, mega companies now, which are dwarfing anything in the history of the world, like Google, Amazon, and, and some others. Um, there, are, there are suspicious things in there super quick rise to prominence and and international domination monopolistically which uh, should raise some alarms and generally they don't because this is another area which most journalists uh, fear to tread but every once in a while there's a whistleblower or someone who will write an article or or even a a book that few people read as to what's going on here and and not only that what is ahead of us and I think we've had a very clear insight in this past week alone just taking the past week at what could be ahead we keep saying you know we ain't seen nothing yet and this is going to be a year like no other well last week right up till today has been a week like no other so I don't know what we can expect to see next but it's it's going to be interesting times for sure Absolutely. And, Peter, when you opened up the show, you made reference to the Florida school shooting. I just wanted to come back there for a minute to ask mm-hmm. you your thoughts on a number of developments that we've learned uh, just over the weekend. And, and since the last time you came on, uh, we've learned that there was a not one but four Sh- Broward County Sheriff's deputies who mm-hmm. did not go in the school. We've learned about the multiple tips to federal law enforcement officials, uh, specifically one call from uh, the the adopted mother or guardian of Nicholas Cruz to the FBI saying he's going to shoot up a school. Uh, that's what she believed, and they they came they were called to his house over thirty nine times uh, over the you know, the seven years uh, this Cruz kid, and they're trying to blame guns. I just wanted to get your take on the uh, failures of law enforcement, specifically these sheriff deputies not entering the school when hearing the gunshots. <laughs> Well, th- this is perhaps, uh, in my memory, the clearest and, and most outrageous case of the failure of a bureaucratic law enforcement at every level. And again, it's hard to hold individual law enforcement personnel uh, accountable, fully accountable, as it is uh, to hold FBI agents accountable for what the FBI has been up to. I think most of the blame, in my opinion, for what, for the, the gross failure and incompetence of, as I said at the outset, uh, every level of law enforcement from the local right up to the national FBI is attributable to the bankrupt leadership of these departments and agencies and the failure of the bureaucratic model because it is sclerotic, it is status quo, it's uh, incapable of adapting and acting spontaneously and in a way that actually meets the situation at hand. So whether it, what happened in Florida with the four cops who allegedly did not act like they should have when they got on the scene of the shooting, whether it's accountable to poor training or, or something else in, in their background in that way, I hope it will be investigated. And I mean, just look look at the sheriff there. The guy is, in my opinion, a political hack. 
Uh, he's failing to take any responsibility. He's bragging on, on talk shows about the great job that he's done in that position. I mean, one can't even begin to imagine what the families of the 17 people who died and others who were seriously injured, what they must be feeling as this news is coming out that literally nothing was done in the critical first minutes of that shooting to maybe try to stop it. I, I mean, it just chills the blood to try to imagine what those people, those relatives, friends, and, and even complete strangers are feeling as that news comes out. It, 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 as President Trump said, I think today, did he use the word disgusting or something like that to describe yeah. Yeah. his opinion of it? And again, an honest appraisal. He'll He'll be criticized for saying that, but is not speaking the truth. Uh, I mean, it's it's one of the most outrageous things. And then maybe that's not even the most outrageous thing about what happened last week. And and it's certainly equally, if not a more lasting outrageousness, how the powers that be are trying to use that horrible, tragic event to uh, shred the Constitution and and punish we law-abiding Americans who want to live by the Constitution. But, you know, we should remember that our uh, most recent president before President Trump, the regime of Barack Hussein Obama, it was back in the early or mid-1990s when a then a budding politician, local politician, Barack Hussein Obama, who was just emerging, gave, I believe it was a radio interview to a public station in Chicago. And in the course of that uh, half hour or so interview, he commented on his view of the Constitution and he said to paraphrase that he, as a constitutional scholar and expert, saw the, saw the United States Constitution as a, a document uh, of negative things. In other words, it constrained the government. It, it told the government what it could not do in order to leave Americans a, a a lot of free reign to live their lives without restraint. And he saw it differently. He thought the Constitution should be a document which uh, mandated or, or laid out, in fact, what the government should be doing to uh, be to make the United States more of a nanny state. Now, that's a paraphrase, of course, but essentially that's what he was saying. And, of course, when he got his hands on the levers of power... That's where he started, and look where he ended up. I mean, we're learning uh, every day now more and more as we unravel what went on in his regime, especially in the last year, if not the last months of his rule, uh, what he was able to do with his minions at the highest levels of power in the agencies to make life uh, very, very difficult for his successor, his elected successor, you, you to make, say the least. You make some great points there. And, and I am, I, you know, I, look, the, when we when we looked at the regime, the, this Barry Satoro, we don't even know who the hell this guy is. We, we looked, when we were going through that, um, the uh, the absolute, uh, really the fundamental change that he promised of course, he he acted on that, and that the the complete change of course. Um, now, Bush, I, I can't give Bush any uh, George W. Bush and George H. W. Bush both globalists to the core, so they grease the skids for Obama. But the fact of the matter is, um, 
this even makes it more, in my view, more uh, essential to understand that had Hillary Clinton won, and I think that this is kind of the, the golden nugget here, had she won and carried out another four years, eight years of what Obama started, our country would not even, uh, we, we would not, we'd be done. We would be absolutely done as a constitutional republic. And, and thank God that God had mercy on us and allowed uh, Donald Trump in, the, in office. But but I just see uh, opportunities right now being squandered. God might have given a respite to to this country, given us this this pause, if you will, to its destruction or its own destruction. But when in the hell are people going to start doing things about this while we have the chance? Because come twenty, look, twenty eighteen elections are coming up, and, and the progressives, the communists, the globalists, whatever you want to call them, they're making their plans. They're saying, okay, mm-hmm. we we got you know we got to change. We have to fight back. We could still lose everything as much as little as we gain, you know, in in six months from now. You are absolutely correct, and that is going to be the challenge of immediately this year ahead, leading up to the November elections, and of course beyond. But we really have our work uh, cut out for us, and um, I don't know where it goes. Actually, Alex Jones's third hour today with Ted Nugent was pretty much on that very topic. Uh, Nugent is a firebrand, a very articulate citizen. As he said, he's uh, just a guy who plays a guitar, <laughs> but he's really smart, and he has a huge following on social media. And, wow, I would recommend people find that hour with Ted Nugent on that was Alex Jones' yeah. show today. That, that was, And, you know, yeah. he basically said, you know, what you su- just suggested, Doug, that we, we've got to get off our butts by the millions, make our voices heard in legal ways, and more than anything, vote. Vote in people who will support President Trump and and keep the Democrats from seizing power. And by the way, in recent days, or actually it was yesterday, I think the news came out, that uh, Michelle Obama, the uh, launch date or the publication date for her book for which she was paid a $30 million advance. Her book, uh, what is it, Beginnings? or uh, Coming Out. Title. Um, it's something like that. It had know. a one-word title, um, whatever. But uh, there were two articles today at American Thinker, one, I believe, by Thomas Lipson, the other by Monica Schalter, which suggests that this is evidence, unfortunately, that she's laying the groundwork for a presidential run. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are that, reading that, the tea leaves, but it, it, these are very interesting and, and troubling articles. So, again, I would recommend those. And not only that, we have Kamala Harris uh, there, you know, another yeah, uh, minority candidate. Oh, and here, here's another shocking thing I found out. Um, I, I've been following this character in California uh, named Kevin DeLeon. D-E-L-E accent O-N, which actually isn't his real name. He changed his name. Leon is part of his original birth name, but he added an accent to it. Uh, This character, whose parents are from Guatemala, although he was born in the United States, is now uh, arguably the top or most powerful politician in the state of California. He's the head of the... um, state legislature, which is almost totally Democratic-controlled. And now Jerry Brown is in his last year, so he's fading out. And I learned to my horror 
that this De Leon character, who is a, an open borders fanatic, and bragged at one point recently that more than half of his relatives who are here in the United States are here illegally. Arrest them. He, he thought that was just <laughs> round them up. I'll, I'll drive the bus. Yeah, didn't, didn't he take it? Didn't he put his hand on a Bible to uphold the laws of the United States? No. Well, but anyway, I, I, somehow I missed this until today that this guy. Well, I know why I missed it. I, I assumed uh, Feinstein was going to be anointed for another career as senator, but now she didn't uh, get the approval of Whoops. the Democrat State Convention. Yep. And de Leon got more votes than she did. He, he got 59% of the delegates. He was 1% shy of getting the endorsement. But he's probably going to wrest the nomination for the United States Senate from Dianne Feinstein. So as much as we might dislike her, all these years, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for, because this guy is ready to get elected, and I mean, he's going to, in effect, be the Reconquista senator from Mexico or uh, northern Mexico, aka California. God help us, it's we're we're invaded. Unbelievable! I mean, really, God help us. California is going down the tubes faster than anyone could have predicted. The the, the Californication, uh, you know, the. Uh uh, I just, yeah, it just makes my head hurt to think. Okay, you've got this, um, and and how, well, but how do you fight that? Because outside of at this point, at at this point in time, given the the timeline with California, given all of the events, given the power structure there, you know, if I was living in California, I'd be I'd be in fighting mode every single day. Uh, you just can't allow this to happen. But again, uh, you know, uh, uh, I defer to you, Peter. I just I, I don't know if you just, saw this to if you saw this today. Uh, I I tuned in to hear Michael Savage, <laughs> and of course he is uh, getting a lot of press mileage out of his tentatively throwing his hat in the ring to put himself up as a candidate for this U.S. Senate seat. And he said he'll decide by the date, uh, the last date he can decide. I think it's March 8th, but I suspect that's actually a, a publicity ploy on, on his yeah. part, uh, obviously. But, uh, yeah. you know, other than, uh, well, I mean, he wouldn't have a chance anyway, let's face it. Uh, I, I, I certainly, you know, with his baggage and all, I would prefer Michael Savage, a.k.a. Michael A. Weiner. Right. His real name too, you know. In fact, I thought, how would he run for Senate when he'd have to uh, use his real name because that's still his real name. He he never changed it uh, officially, so I, I think he's playing with us. But you know, I'm willing I, to play. I, yeah, a couple I, of weeks it'll be fun. That that whole it, it's it's a, well. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. It's but entertainment it's, with a capital yeah, E. Yeah. But you know, more power to him. Um, but really, California, it, you know, I hate to say that it's lost, but I, I don't know what it's going to take. And, and again, it's, it's a, a battle of demographics. Uh, I believe it's as, as we now look at California, which by the way, it's not only what happens in California, because what happens in California doesn't stay in California. It, it spreads nationwide. It's been that way since really, uh, modern times, 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And, and since California is extremely influential, that's that's kind of like the testing or proving ground for all, all kinds of wild stuff, which is then quickly institutionalized nationwide. So, um, 
you know, who knows, but uh, will it have to crash and burn before sanity uh, sets in there? I, I, I don't know, but this this De Leon character really scares me to death, as does uh, this, a sitting senator there now, the, the, the junior senator, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, oh, yeah. she, even, who, who is oh, to the left. I mean, if, if actually, if De Leon gets elected, those two together will be like... Uh, Mao Zedong and Nikita Khrushchev, you know, sharing power. I mean, they they are out now communists. Let's face it, they're they're, they're sick. Yep. Uh, you know, I, yep. I just don't know what. To, I mean, you, you, it's a family show, but you know, one could really get on a roll talking about those two, and we have to respect them. They refuse. They and their ilk refuse to accept the duly elected president of the United States. They portray him widely. Uh, as a, a mannequin with his head being cut off, bloodied, and 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 of course I we didn't have a chance to talk about this, although I wrote an article at Hagman Report and it, it came and went really quickly. When Barack Hussein Obama hired the artist uh, to paint his uh, one of his official portraits, yeah, get into this, this guy, because you that's a in fact we should push it back up. Go ahead, get in, uh, this is this guy was this. paid five hundred thousand dollars. To paint this disgusting portrait. I mean, the portrait of Obama itself is a piece of crap, in my opinion. But and and I, you know, I, to this day, I cannot determine who paid for that. You know, the Obamas didn't pay for it. It's part of the Smithsonian permanent uh, uh, exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery, which is part of the National Smithsonian. Institute of Museums. So I suspect the government paid for it. But amazingly, in all the articles, I haven't been able to track down who paid for that portrait. But anyway, Obama chose this guy, or the Obamas chose this artist because, of, well, notwithstanding the fact that previously his claim to fame was painting portraits of African American women looking heroic while they are holding the severed head of a white person, and on the other hand, I believe the the subject is holding a, a large knife or blade. So, of course, it's extremely reminiscent of that vile comedian Kathy Griffin and her posing with the bloody uh, severed uh, model or mannequin's head. Yes, there we have it on the screen now. Isn't, isn't that lovely? This is the artist who Barack Hussein Obama uh, Chose and and we see in the backgrounds of that portrait a similar leafy foliage background, which was uh, adapted and adopted perfectly for Obama's portrait. And when I put that up at the Hagman Report, uh, one of the photographs I chose was was one uh, which someone else had had put up at American Thinker, actually, where they took thumbnails of portraits of other presidents that are in that National Museum. There we have it. <laughs> and, and that's unretouched. I mean, Obama's stands out by itself because of the ridiculous posing and background. I mean, that guy has Children, let's play a game. Laughs. Yeah, which does not belong. Let's play a game with that. You're right. Well, at least the artist got the feminist part right, you know, uh, in my view. The anyway. artist, of course, is, a, a, you know, a very much out-of-the-closet gay person as well. Oh, and then an alive story... Say. And a lied story. I forget if I even wrote about this. These stories come so fast and furious, you know, you'd have to be writing 20 stories a day to keep up with it. Exactly. The other one that came out at about the same time was 
the uh, appearance after 14 years of it being suppressed and totally hidden of the photograph taken in, I believe it was March or the spring of 2005. That was when Barack Hussein Obama was a brand new United States senator. He was two or three months into his first term, already running for president, of course. And there he is meeting, grinning, standing right next to uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, a.k.a. Calypso Louis, which uh, Rush Limbaugh calls him because earlier in his career, Louis Farrakhan was a Calypso singer when Calypso was hot back in the day. And, and you know, Peter, they, they made sure that that photograph did not see the light of day. And, and you talk about uh, the press. There, There's Exhibit A, too, uh, of the press, making sure that, that the true reality of Obama hobnobbing it with uh, Calypso Louia, you're right, never saw the light of day. Right. Well, and not only that, when the story finally came out, and there was an African-American photographer who uh, he shot the photo. This was actually the meeting of the Congressional Black Caucus, which Obama attended, and, and they welcomed Farrakhan. And we should remind viewers and listeners, in case they don't know, that uh, many observers have written about the, the questionable history of Minister Louis Farrakhan making what are easily interpreted as anti-Semitic statements, anti-white statements, racist statements, etc., etc. Et I won't call him any names. I'll let the other critics um, who have really thoroughly researched him go on the record. But, you know, there it was. And so the photographer took the photo and immediately or the next day he was asked by a, a member either of the Nation of Islam Farrakhan's group or the Black Caucus I forget which which to hand over the uh, uh, the memory card this was in the early days of digital photography so he he gave the memory card uh, never to be seen again however he copied it he made a copy of that photograph which he willingly suppressed and when he finally released it a couple of weeks ago he said yeah I, I made sure to suppress it and never publicize it because it clearly would have harmed Obama's race for the presidency. So at least he finally released it. I don't know if I can blame the man or not. Well, you, you know, Farrakhan had a copy. You know that, that there were multiple digital copies, and I've, I've got some information about this. And this would have gone to the media right before the 08 election. Right, that the was critical stopped. one. Yeah, right. Yeah. Instead, we got Oprah endorsing him in yep. January of 08, which really uh, supercharged his campaign, as well as Teddy Kennedy and Caroline Kennedy the same month, and then Oprah campaigned with him. By the way, we also still have Oprah to worry about. I, I haven't written her off as somebody who might uh, feel the uh, uh, the need or get the call from on high, which would be, of course, perfectly fine if she hears somebody speaking can, to can her. Can you imagine her cabinet? The, the cabinet would be like the, the view, okay? The cabinet. It, it just, it, oh, man. Oh. We, we have to get uh, fire in the belly to uh, us and, and millions of others. All to, right, Peter, to I'm going to come pick you up. In the bud. Uh, Joan, I'm going to come pick you up. Okay, folks, anywhere between from, from here to the West Coast, you want on, let's go. Let's hop the train. I'll be getting my one-way ticket to... Uh, 
Eastern Pennsylvania there. <laughs> Western, Western Pennsylvania. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's Western. all right, because Eastern, they, they can okay. drop off into the into the ocean. Yeah, the bottom line is, we need, look, we need to fight. We need to fight hard. We need to engage. We're not engaging because, they, I mean, how much more, how, Peter, how much more notice do we need as conservatives, as Christian conservatives, that they are not playing by the rules, that that, that they expect us to play by the rules, but they're not going to play by the rules. We can't do this anymore. We cannot allow them to run roughshod over us, and if we do, shame on us. But I'm not going to look at my grandson, my granddaughter, and, and, and try to explain why she is oppressed and, and, and subjugated to a nanny state. I'm just not going to do that. And, and if I have to die with my boots on, hey, I, I, I will do that. So I'm going to pick you up. We're going to pick you up, John. He, he's going to he's going to write. He, he'll spell us. Let's go and let's uh, giddy up. I'm going to need a few storage rooms because I, I I don't travel light. But uh, no, we we've we've touched on this point before, Doug. That for many of us, and and I think many so-called ordinary people actually feel the same way or a similar way. Uh, there's no alternative. At, at, there's no alternative at this point for us because. If we fail in this second American revolution, which is what it is, uh, we, we've not only lost everything, we've probably lost our lives and literally our personal freedom in the process because they've got our names at this point and they're coming for us if they can wrest total power once again. We, we've, we both or maybe all three of us have had a taste of this in the past and maybe even in the present as to how this works so uh, we have to be vigilant, we have to be active, we have to be committed, and we have to realize that we are doing God's work in this because this country was born. It's a Judeo-Christian country that takes its inspiration, its influence, its Declaration of Independence, and its Congress directly from the Christian model. Yeah, not Islam. I'm sorry. No. It is the, it's the Judeo Christian in a broader sense. And don't send me emails about that term. Um, it's the Christian base model for the Constitution. The Constitution is not a suggestive document. It's not a living, breathing document. It is the rule of law. And you're right. You, you are absolutely right. And the wide angle view that, that you provided us tonight, absolutely critical in, in, at least in my view especially for some of the younger people to listen to and to take heed because I'll tell you something you're you're exactly right you know we cannot afford to keep silent we cannot afford to keep silent in the face of the banning of our colleagues on social media and shame on YouTube shame on Twitter shame on everyone who remains silent i don't look you know what peter i don't i don't even care if they if democrats with a democratic, not a socialist, not, not, not a, if, if they were banned, I would be pissed off about that as much as I am right now with respect to the banning of the, of the, of our colleagues. And I'm not we, saying we are, people. we are Bill of Rights purists. Right. We believe, I mean, these people, these politicians who are ruling us put their hand on a Bible and took an oath to uphold the Constitution and look what they are doing. They are acting as criminals, traitors, and, and seditious influences, in my opinion. So That's we right. have our work cut out for us on this plane, 
There's another plane, which uh, I won't get into because I'm not a prophet, a priest, a reverend, or a rabbi. If you need that uh, input, go to those folks. But uh, we're laying it out here every week now, and I'll look forward to next Monday when we shall meet again. And any articles I can come up with between now and then, please visit hagmanreport.com and twitter.com slash pchalka. I appreciate seeing you there. Yeah, and and please follow Peter on Twitter, pchalka, at pchalka. But but also, I, I would like to say this, Peter, your previous articles at American Thinker, so critically important. In fact, I downloaded every one of your your articles on American Thinker onto a hard drive. Um, here right. at, at the office because they're, that they're all linked from my Twitter I, I, since last August. Everything I've written since last August is easily findable via my Twitter. Fantastic. Okay. All right. Peter, you've been a, a very gracious guest. We really appreciate it and thank you so much for your, your generosity of time, your gift of time and, uh, your appearance here. So much, so much value added to information. All right. Uh, tomorrow Until morning. Next time. Yeah. Thank you. Tomorrow morning, uh, start your day out with me, Doug Hagman. That's, I'm in, I'm in the saddle at 9 a.m. Eastern on Blog Talk Radio and Global Star. By the way, click the follow button on BTR. Then join Joe and John at 2 Eastern time. And then come back tomorrow night here at 7 o'clock. Another great program lined up for you. Thank you so very much. Eric, thank you. Eric the Tech.